detective? Thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Now Care More, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. How it works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy podcast, the crosswords where science fiction, fantasy, and horror meet. I'm your host, Nathan Bartleball. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Bill Van Vagel. Bill, how are you doing today? I'm doing really, really well. I'm hoping for some warm weather. We just had snow last week, but right now we've got some good movies, and I think we have a good diversity of movies to talk about, but I also know that we have a few things to talk about and introduce. Yeah, I'm I'm excited. This is another one of our review episodes, and we've been having a lot of those lately. We've been seeing a lot of movies. I've been seeing a lot of new movies as well, and uh, so we'll we will get to that in just a moment. But before we do, uh, just a couple things of note: we had uh, we've got some fun upcoming episodes. We've got an X Files episode up on the horizon. We also are starting to kind of uh, try to lay the groundwork for some of the things we're going to do. Uh, over the summer, uh, we have a series that is just about to start up that is essentially not so much a series, but just another another one of the types of episodes that we do. Uh, it's going to be uh, double features, and we just recorded the first of those episodes. It's going to be covering uh, two movies with uh, with a special guest, and we'll have more information about that soon. And we, uh, at the time that you're hearing this, we've also got an episode that we just were uh, bringing back VOD Roulette with the with the horror chronicles guys and that was a lot of fun so we'll, you'll be seeing more regularly uh the vod roulette segments as well but before yeah, i was we gonna say and those that don't remember the horror chronicle guys gerald and ryan they're an absolute hoot yeah and get over to there check their their podcast out they got a lot of great uh, material over there and then otherwise we're gonna go ahead bill and uh get on with the show here and do our uh, review episode. So review of movies we've seen, new movies, old movies, stuff that's just come out, stuff that we had to dig up with a shovel. Um, <laughs> Bill, why don't you start? Because I'm always curious to hear about some of the stuff you've been watching. Yeah. And as you guys and girls know, when we do this, these are basically movies that both of us have sat and watched on the couch with, couch with our wives or our kids, or it's late at night and you're just flipping around and you're looking for something or something to watch with my daughter or Nathan with his daughter and son, things that we just pop into our lives. So the first one that I watched was one that I'd seen a bit of buzz on Facebook about and not in the horror, not in the sci-fi, not in the fantasy or the action. I'm a musicaholic, as you guys know. I also love my heavy metal. So one movie that I was very curious about, is 2022's on Netflix, Metal Lords. Metal Lords is a rated R movie, although eh, it's, 
It's I would say it's a light that's R. A, that's a light R, not a super heavy R. An hour thirty-seven, directed by Peter Sollett. It stars Jaden Martell, who was in It and Knives Out and It Chapter Two. Adrian Greensmith, who was oh sorry, Adrian Greensmith, who I didn't know from anything else. Isis Hainsworth, another young actor. And Brett Gelman, who was in a movie Harpoon, The Other Guys, and is also in Stranger Things. So the description is, two friends try to form a heavy metal band with a cellist for a battle of the bands. Now, the first thing that grabbed me was the poster. Now, <laughs> Nathan and I have both been down this journey many a times where the poster has either underwhelmed or suckered us in. But in this situation, there's a man with white makeup with black around the eyes, you know, aching to kiss or some of those dark metal bands. And there is uh, more of a, I would say, geekier type of individual in the middle. And then a, a woman on the side who's their age with a, a, a large bass. And they're sitting <laughs> in a high school cafeteria. <laughs> so, you know, it's this motley crew of people. Here's what I would basically say about the film. If you like School of Rock, this is kind of the metal version of School of Rock. But it's got, it, it goes into different places. But, and I said Asus was a him. Isis is a her. I shouldn't have said that. Okay. So I, I'm going to use a little bit of uh, potty mouth just because of the name of the band. So if you're listening with mom, <laughs> I apologize, mom. So a high school band called Skull F has to find a bass player, okay? Their bass player is, is quit. They need to find somebody, but they want to enter into a Battle of the Bands type scenario. There's a great soundtrack to this film, as you'd expect with this kind of uh, playback. You know, you've got Metal Gods by Judas Priest blaring at the beginning, okay? And Kevin and Hunter the two main gentlemen are geeky outsiders, but they really don't care. They're not one that wants to fit in with the group. They're happy to be with themselves playing their Metallica, Judas Priest and getting into the music, but they really want to get this band to going. Okay. They go to a party one night and they get drunk and they insult the house band that's playing there. And they find out about this battle of the bands and they get lippy and they basically get tossed from this party and they run out by the hides of their skin. But they're determined to beat the local band that's the popular kids, but it's more of a, a mellow, poppy kind of band. And they're like, no, 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 we can do that. And so you've got uh, Greensmith, the actor Greensmith, Adrian Greensmith. He's the uh, gentleman with all the face makeup. His car has the license plate Power Slave, which is an obvious <laughs> reference to Iron Maiden. And the trooper starts coming on. And then you get For Whom the Bell Tolls to Metallica. And he's got phrases like, and it's got a little bit of dazed and confused in it. You know, you slow down, you die. That's metal. <laughs> That's the kind of phrases he's got, okay? But it's basically an updated metal version of School of Rock, okay? Yeah, so I like at one point he says, who are you to stop a man who strives with gods? 
<laughs> but they still need their other member. You can't have a two-piece metal band. Like it's tough enough to have a two-piece, you know, with a pop band or you know, a one-man show kind of deal. For a for a heavy metal, you need it. So they've they try to find their bass player. And Isis Hainsworth plays Emily. And she's at the beginning, there's a great scene where she's a member of the marching band, and the head of the marching band is a bit of uh, a tyrant, and she just tuck, chucks her flute, it, it pitches into the ground, and she's done. But she's a classically trained bass player. And she kind of gets on a little bit with uh, Jaden Martell, and they're kind of flirting back and forth. They're both kind of socially awkward, but they know that you know there's an attraction there. But she's attracted by his drumming. <laughs> and, and so eventually... They, they, uh, that Isis goes to Jaden and says, you know, basically, you know, what do you do? And she's curious. She pops her head in and he kind of explains that they're looking for a bass player. And one night he slips under the door, the notes of uh, war pigs. <laughs> and there's a, there's a great sequence of them learning war pigs. It's almost like in school of rock where they're learning all the various songs from the classic artists. And, and they get right into it. And, and if there's anybody who knows the metal scene, they'll know that there are bands that will classically play these heavy songs. And it's really, really good. The movie has a fun vibe. Uh, my daughter, Ella, who's six, she was dancing in the air with her horns up. <laughs> I was prouder as punch. And she's just going, yeah, dad, metal. And I'm like, I, I almost teared up. It was great. There's a little bit of adult content. Maybe that's what made us an R. They don't show anything. It's a lot of the language. They drop a lot of like C words. And as you mentioned, the name of the band. The name of the band. At one point, the two, they basically lose their virginity. But they don't show it. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's basically just the shagging wagon and then the, the camera pans to it. And then the next scene. You know, there's a, there's a touching romance. It's almost a coming of age film. And it, it totally is. It's, you know, you mentioned... Um, you you mentioned uh, Days and Confused. You also mentioned School of Rock, and both of those are Richard Linkletter movies. Actually, I have a review of a Linkletter movie coming up, but I think he he's a good touch point for this kind of for this particular kind of movie. The movies are already in the same way that his films are, where there is content in there that uh, it's mostly the language. You know, um, I definitely think it's not a movie for little kids. Uh, if you have a 15 year old or someone like that, uh, you know, someone a little bit older that, that might really appreciate it, uh, particularly if they are into metal music. I'd say it's a fun movie. It's a coming of age movie. It starts out kind of generic. I thought like it, you know, it's going through its paces. You get the two young guys who are sort of like picked on and then, you know, they, they pick this girl, uh, who's a cellist and, you know, they're, they're worried about that. And he's like, I don't know what, you know, is this going to look good for us? And the guy's like our band, you already named our band Skull. <laughs> You know, it's like, yeah. what did you think? Did you do that to attract girls? <laughs> well, and, and at one point he's like, uh, yeah, you know, this is kind of, you know, not not the way a metal band should look. And then they pan to all these posters in his basement. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, you got you got Rob Halford in S&M gear and you got yeah. all these, <laughs> you got Freddie uh, Mercury in all of his, uh, you know, in his outlandishness. Yeah, it fits. Yeah, don't you worry. <laughs> And Isis, who's Scottish American, she's great. I loved her, and I thought her interplay with uh, Martel was 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 wonderful. I thought all those three kids were a lot of fun, 
And I think that's kind of the obviously that's the heart of the movie. It's cleverly written. It's well put together. It rocks, like you said. Um, but I, I, to me, again, I appreciated the level of detail with their relationships and some of the ways that they yeah. they show these little sequences. Even the sequence you mentioned where they basically, you know, they're losing their virginity. The way that that plays out between two characters is nicely handled, nicely done. And when they have their moment, the moment you mentioned when they're learning war pigs and they're, they're, they think they have to, you know, they're trying to adapt her into the band. I think that at the end of the day, it's a little, you know, it, it is a little bit, um, what it, you'd it's expect. got a little bit of this. It's got a little bit of the sappiness to it. Well, I don't but, mind that. I think that it's no. a little bit, um, predictable it goes yeah. just about where you expect to do but to be fair so did some of the movies we're talking about i don't think there was anything uh explicitly original about either school of rock or days and confused but it has that warm sort of feeling that the link letter movies have also beyond the the feeling there's a kind of feeling of authenticity of genuineness of like when i was a kid when i was at this awkward sort of age and where things like metal spoke to me as being a kind of shy somewhat nerdy kid and you you know in your mind rock is this mythic amazing thing in your mind that you can channel all of your frustrations and your energies into i think that this has an element where you watch it and you think hey I recognize that emotion. I recognize those feelings. And that's what makes a good movie. You know, when I think you, it's not hollow, it has a heart to it. No, the, the, there's a little bit of re- relatability to this. Yeah. Because even if you don't like heavy metal, everybody's been to high school. Everybody's had to yeah. deal with the social scene. Everybody's had high school crushes. I mean, you could you could flip this into be guys who like ska music or guys that like synth pop or whatever. It, the, the genre doesn't matter. It's kind of the underlying story. Now, I will say that there's, for for the music lovers out there, there are some nice cameos. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. Tommy, Tommy Morello's in it. Scott Ian is in it. Robbie Halford's. Robbie Halford looks great, I thought, in that. Oh, and yeah. Kirk, ha- Kirk Hammett was in it. There's, there's, there's this really nice dream sequence <laughs> where, where, where uh, Rob Halford is playing the, the voice of reason. <laughs> which, which I found absolutely hilarious. Not that he isn't like, he's a very well-spoken. Anybody who knows him knows he's, you know, he, he's not without forethought and stuff, but it's just funny to see him in full leather. Yes. <laughs> well, Morello's cameo, who he is, is pretty funny. That scene is pretty funny. He shows up towards the end. Uh, now Morello was executive producer on the movie. And I, one of the other moments that I really enjoy, of course, is that this is, this, this eventually comes around to the big battle of the bands. Right. And so they have their song that they write and actually the, the lyrics and the music were done by Weiss and by uh, Morello, who's executive producer on the film. So that song, is it called like, it's the machinery, the machinery of torment is the name of the song. I didn't write the, down um, the name of it, but I mean, I, I took I a mean, note because you, I remember thinking machinery of torment felt right on. And then looking the, and I thought, Hey, this is actually, this kind of rocks. And then looking it up afterwards that both Morello and Weiss, who's the, the script writer here. And I mean, if you know, if you know this stuff, if you know Morello from rage against the machine, like it's kind of got that vibe for 15 year olds. It really does. Yeah. 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 It's, and it's yeah. a well done movie. I think it's in the higher echelon of these sort of Netflix films that are aimed in that, in that kind of Canyon region between Here's family entertainment and here's entertainment for sort of like a, uh, you know, a, a teen set. And it's not surprising. I think that we find out that this movie was directed by, uh, Peter Solight that did, uh, Nick and Nora's infinite playlist. It had, and I think this is a, actually a better film than that film, but it has some of that sort of charm to it. 
And, and there's a nice role, a small role by an actor called Joe Manginiello, who yeah, was in yeah. Justice League and uh, Magic Mike, among others. <laughs> but he plays this uh, former rocker at a rehab facility. <laughs> That's a good scene. Yeah. <laughs> a couple really good scenes to it. Yeah. I give this an eight out of 10. It's, it's got something, if you're 35 plus and you remember that scene growing up through high school and stuff, you're going to like it. But if you're also, if you're 14, 15, 16, 17, you're going to get something out of this as well. I, I think it crosses those kind of boundaries and genres and age gaps and things. I, I would highly suggest this. You know, if you have a, a son or a daughter who's above the age of 13, you can sit on the couch and watch it with them and you'll both enjoy it. Yeah, it's a good film. I give this, a, I'm, I'm a, just a hair lower than you. I'm at a 7.5. It's a solid recommendation. And I think the, the the best thing is what you said. If you're into heavy metal music, you'll love this because it's going to have a lot of uh, little insights. It's going to have a lot of references that you're going to get. But if you're not, I think it speaks largely to what it's like to be an awkward uh, kid in high school who's trying to find their thing and latching on to that thing and realizing that beneath that, the thing that's important about that thing is it helps connect you to other people. It kind of reminded me of, do you remember a couple of years ago, there was that film Spontaneous. Yes, except that movie then involved exploding teenagers. Yeah. So that was that a was darker sort of film, yeah. But but, but aside from the, uh, the blowing up part, it was just a coming-of-age teenage film. That's true. That's true. It had the same – it had uh, some of the same hits, some of the same notes. That one was a little yeah. more melancholy and a little bit uh, darker, and this Whereas one's this, a little if, bit – But if you take away the heavy metal end of it, you've still got a coming-of-age teenage story. You do, yeah, you definitely do, and then so that's what's uh, that is what is good about it. Alrighty, so what do you got there, Nathan? So since we were, I was going to review something else initially, but we were talking about Linkletter, we're talking about Netflix, we're talking about coming of age stories. So a movie I saw, and I actually did watch this one with my kids that uh, just came out on Netflix. I, I it's been probably a couple weeks now, and I had put it on my list to see. I hadn't seen it, and it is called. Apollo 10 and a half, a space age childhood. It is directed by Richard Linkletter, who uh, has made a ton of movies. You know, um, he's a Texas director. He's done, we've talked already about School of Rock and of Dazed and Confused, but he's done uh, so many different kinds of movies. He did the Before trilogy with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. Uh, he's done a lot of, I think, really interesting films using the animated rotoscoping technique where you essentially film actors and then animate over them. Bakshi, Ralph Bakshi used it back in the day. And I think the first time that Linkletter used it was for a movie called Waking Life made in, I think, 2001, which I loved. It was just sort of a walk through various philosophical and existential ideas uh, with a parade of different actors coming in and out of the film. And then he did an adaptation of Philip K. Dick's A, a Scanner Darkly that started uh, – among others, it had Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder, and it had uh, Benicio Del Toro and uh, Robert Downey Jr. in it. It's a fantastic film, I think, and I think that that animated style works very well for for the film. And this one does that same exact animated style. The minute you see it, you'll recognize it if you don't know exactly what I'm talking about here, where, again, they've clearly filmed actors, and now they've animated over it. And this is, though, a very different movie than Waking Life and Scanner Darkly, and it's aimed at a younger audience. It's really a look back 
at a kind of child's perspective, a young boy growing up, his perspective around that whole space race of the 1960s. Uh, it, the Apollo 10 and a half is reflecting that period between Apollo 10 and then Apollo 11 and the moment when there was this heightened excitement for the space program. I think it's very hard for us in these this day and age to connect as much to that excitement for space and, and, and seeing space as this frontier that we were that had boundless potential to it. I don't think we think of that anymore. We've gone in other directions, right? And uh, our technologies have taken different turns. But uh, this is sort of Linkletter tapping into in, in the zeitgeist that he was sort of growing up in and around. And it's, it's a very interesting movie because it really is a kind of slice of life. It is a coming-of-age story. And it's shot through from a kid's perspective. Uh, Jack Black is a narrator here. He's the adult person who's narrating the story. And it's... He's basically talking about, hey, what it was like to grow up at the time when going into space and going to the moon and experiencing all of this was at the forefront of the national imagination. Well, what's fun about Apollo 10 and a half is that it has a sort of skewed, unreliable narrator sort of perspective, right? Because he talks about how he's going to be the uh, – he's recruited by NASA to go to the moon. Because NASA, when they built the first lunar lander, uh, they did the math wrong, and it's too small to put an adult in. <laughs> so what they've decided to do is recruit a kid from elementary school who's going to be the first kid to go into space. And we obviously know up front that this is silly, but the animation sort of helps that. We, we know right up front that the way the film is shot and the way the film is captured, uh, that Linkletter is adding this sort of magical realist feel to what is essentially a, a daydream, a reminiscence of what it felt like to be a kid at a moment when there was this vast potential for something that captured uh, the imagination. And I really, really like the the way that Linkletter handles this. I think that uh, he's got kids in their backyard shooting off these sort of homemade rockets into the air. They're all standing there staring up at the, uh, because they live in sort of proximity to some of these uh, rocket launches so they can see these, these space launches and they can, they witness them happening. And in between what it was like to sort of grow up in the midst of that, you've got the kids driving on their bikes through, <laughs> through clouds of DDT and uh, you know, these kids that are falling down and wrecking their bikes and playing pinball machines and uh, what it was like to kind of just roam the neighborhood all day on your bicycles. We talked about that relatability in a film like metal Lords. I connected uh, even more so to that in this film uh, that plays almost like a reverie. And in fact, it was weird because watching this movie reminded me another Texas director on a very different wavelength than Linkletter, although I think they have some some spiritual um, uh, connectivity there, is uh, Terrence Malick. He did uh, one of my favorite movies in the early, in, in 2000s, uh, in 2011, was, uh, was The Tree of Life. And in that, there's portions of that film that show kids growing up there in the 1950s and the 1960s and kind of this what a childhood life in the midst of a lot of different sort of upheaval and change was like when things were were going all over the place when there were was a lot of ingenuity there was a lot of uh of at the same time that amazing things are happening and we have all these amazing inventions at that same time, there's a lot of discord going on. And I think this movie sort of cuts through that and looks at the child perspective. And if you're someone who 
can connect to that or loves space and loves the idea of what the space program of what NASA represented, particularly in that late 1960s time frame uh, at the moment when we're poised to go to the moon and we do go to the moon, that what that must have felt like is a heartbeat of this film. And I think it's why it works so well. Uh, again, I mentioned it's animated, and I think it was absolutely the right choice for this. You're going to watch this film. You're going to be able to connect to the actors because the actors are for essentially all, uh, for all reasonable purposes, they're right there directly in front of you. And you're going to get fun. Uh, Bill Wise is in the movie and Lee Eddy, and you get, and Jack, even Jack Black, who's narrating, you get the flavor of their performances. And then you get to see this movie that looks like a child's daydream. And I think it's a wonderful little movie. It's uh, it really surprised me. All of our, our kids uh, enjoyed it. And Zachary Levi, who's, who was in Chuck and it was in Shazam. He's, uh, he's one of the two NASA guys. And then, um, Glenn Powell is uh, who is also is the other guy. So it's Glenn Powell and it's Zachary Levi. Powell was the he played John Glenn actually a few years ago in a movie called Hidden Figures. It was also about the space program. And what I think it's that what he taps into here is there's very little plot. There's very little tension in the film as far as like uh, there's no there's no villains. There's no major uh, event that's happening it is a remembrance, and it is shot through that way, so there's things that feel incidental. Uh, if you remember a film like The Sandlot, this movie has some of the same uh, contours that that movie had. So what I like about this is despite the fact that it's from 1967 – or 69, sorry – you, you're you're saying that it's relatable. Kids nowadays would get something out of this and not just go, "Oh, that's what my grandpa watched." Yeah, exactly right. It 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 taps into that and it makes that seem fresh and amazing and interesting. I showed my kids the Joe Dante movie Matinee, which deals with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right, it's like that uh, uh, the flip side of that, which was the sort of the fear and the terror and the uncertainty. And uh, but that movie also connects to what a child's view of this world looks like. And they were fascinated, I think almost in equal measure by these two films. I think uh, Linklair is a wonderful director. I think this is a wonderful movie. I give it an eight out of 10. And I think it's uh it's one that families should really try to see. The funny part is this is rated PG 13. I think it's mostly PG 13 because the characters is 1969. I think it's PG 13 for smoking. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I noticed like the main picture up on uh, IMDB has smoke filtering in the background. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, that would have been, you know, in 1969, no big deal. So, yeah, I think you'll really I mean, like this one, Bill. I think you'll get yeah, a kick out of it. I, I think I'm going to look into this and watch it with Ella. And, and you know, as a history guy and somebody that likes pop culture and such, I think I'll get probably as much out of it as she will. Yeah. And what I love is that little wrinkle that, that in order to convey the feeling and the emotion uh, without just saying it, I love the little wrinkle that Linkletter gives there that that can appeal to kids where this kid's going to go into space. That's what it felt like, right? Like when you're kidding, these things are happening. It's like, hey, I uh, I can do this. This could be something that I can participate in. So the fantasy element of that this kid, they're going to actually send him into space and be on the rocket is fun and done in an interesting and, and, and very uh, sort of whimsical way. I remember a movie made many years ago called The Radio Flyer, which I think tried to capture some of that. And to me, it just it come off like a weird, morbid curiosity. This movie handles that sort of thing much better. So I, I highly recommend it, particularly for uh, families who want who want to see a film or you want to show something to your kids that 
that delves into that world is kind of shrunk, shrunken and doesn't really exist as much for us anymore. That, that world of the wonder of, of space. And it was particularly of, of the, the, the boundless potential of space travel. I was checking down the cast to see if there was a cameo by Tom Hanks. No, no, <laughs> <laughs> but well, that's, that's awesome. And I, I, as I said, I am going to look into this and, you know, one of those times when my daughter's like, Daddy, I'm just bored or whatever, then I'll find this on Netflix and throw this on. So I'm going to check that out. Thanks for that, Nathan. Now, one that I watched that I watched a little while ago, so I might be a little rusty on this one, but uh, it's a 2022 film called Madeline's. And some people describe it as horror, but I have it more as sci-fi. So... I didn't know anything about it. I went into it completely blind and it is directed by Jason Richard Miller, who, who didn't do much in the way of filmmaking two nondescript films, but he was the producer of 2010's frozen, not the kids one. And he did the visual effects for the, for hatchet three. It was, it stars and was written by Bree Grant who those who know the genre might recognize her from 12 hour shift or the one from last year or two years ago, I guess it would be after midnight. Uh, it also stars Perry Shen, who is in hatchet one, two, and three and an actor that myself and Nathan both enjoy. Although he's in a lot, Richard real. Yes. I like Richard real from office space is what I was thinking of, of him from. But he's also in one that we both love as well, The Man from Earth. Yeah, he had a rather large role in that film, yeah. yeah. And uh, one that I like, uh, Fear, Inc., a horror from a few years back. So what is this movie about, Madeline's? Because when I grabbed, the, the title gives you nothing, other than there's somebody called Madeline, obviously, in the film. So here's what IMDb says. Working in their garage, indie entrepreneurs Madeline and Owen discover the secret of time travel. There's only one hitch. A bug in the code creates a new copy of Madeline at the same time every day. So you got a little bit of Groundhog Day in there. You've got a little bit of time travel, some H.G. Wells mixed in there. What is this movie all about? So it opens with Grant and Shen conducting time travel transference experiments in their garage with an orange. So, you know, like in the fly, you know, they're, they're doing it with a champagne bottle. Well, here they're doing it with an orange. <laughs> now, this is low budget. Okay. So, this is the fly and a lot of those kind of films on one-tenth of the budget. But Brie Grant usually does a pretty good performance. Real is their financial backer. He's back in his apartment and he's throwing money towards this entrepreneur, entrepreneurial uh uh, exposition that they're doing. They're trying to, he wants them to figure this out so he, he can benefit. So they do an experiment. The orange transferred, they're getting, you know, all giddy about it. And they experimented on a lab rat, but it fails. And so Brie Grant kind of gets depressed. She has a couple drinks. She's kind of ticked off at Perry Shen, her husband, you know, it didn't go the way she did. She has a couple drinks. And she experiments on herself successfully. Okay. 
so she, but during this transference with her, she created some new code and 3,600 new versions of her will show up at the same time every day. And so Perry Shen each day has to kill them off each time they show up at the same time every day. So, you know, he, and he gets creative, you know, sometimes it's with a machete. Sometimes it's by electrocution. Sometimes it's by drowning. However, that they come up, they, he sets up this little tent in the backyard because he knows exactly where they'll pop up and he does his business. So the neighbors can't see him killing this woman who they think is his wife every day at the same time. So, and there's movie references in here uh, to say Top Gun. All right. It, now the killing takes place in the front yard with gas sometimes in a tent or a knife. And I'm sitting there going, the neighbors don't see or hear anything. Like there's a hedge fence, but it's not 30 feet high. Somebody's got to have seen something. The writing is not the best. Not saying Bria Grant isn't a good writer, but I think it, it suffers from a lack of a budget on this one. Okay. Now, these people keep showing up. Bree Grant's character keeps showing up, keeps showing up, keeps showing up. There's a small twist in that he kills at one point the wrong one. So the one that was the original Bree gets killed, but one of the secondary Brees survives. But really, it doesn't matter because it's still the same person. They've just transferred from a different spot. So... There's a, a lot of the same type of action and story. It goes on and on and on. I didn't find that Shen and Grant had a lot of chemistry to it. I kind of put it as time crimes meets Groundhog Day, but not as good. Uh, and the thing is, each of the Madelines that come up kind of have their own agenda. So it kind of gets uh, ridiculous at a certain point because there's like, I don't know, eight or ten of these Madelines all in the same house trying to conspire to figure out who's going to survive to be the one at the end. There's a good use of body doubles or camera work. I'll grant them that. They did a lot of that. But I found the ending confusing. And I'm just going to leave you to watch it to figure it out. It's a, it's a combination of, of kind of dark humor, some horror, some sci-fi, some time travel elements. I gave it a 5 out of 10. I don't know if you're going to want to rush out and watch this. It's watchable. Like, I've seen a lot worse than this film. Like, if you're a sci-fi person or if you like uh, time travel films, you might want to check it out. But it's one that you'll watch because you're finishing your end-of-the-year list or you're just watching it while you're reading the paper or doing whatever you are on the, on the couch. You're not going to set aside a time to watch this. So I don't know if that deters you, Nathan, or if it makes you curious or what have you. Well, it doesn't deter me. You've sold me. <laughs> uh, this totally sounds like my kind of movie. I think you probably know that. And uh, I also know, Bill, that you have a habit of sometimes giving five stars to movies. I then turn around and give like eight stars to or whatever. <laughs> so, true, yeah. uh, it, you know, uh, I think that um, I, I guess my question is, is it, is it better or worse than Starfish in your mind? <laughs> I liked it more than Starfish because I didn't find that it's confusing. 
Yeah, yeah. And say I sometimes the fun of a movie like this is being able to sort through it and pick through it and 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 try to keep a log of what's going on and what's not going on. I think um anyone heard the last episode knows that we've had a lot of very inventive movies this year. So I think a movie like this that is sort of maybe on the right in the middle won't seem as uh, fascinating as it might in a year where we we haven't gotten as many. So I am interested, though. I had a quick question for you. I see yep. that it's listed as comedy, horror, sci-fi. It sounds much more on the lines of sci-fi. Uh, how is it in terms of uh, appropriateness? What, what would the rating on this be? Because I don't, I'm having a hard time finding a rating. Is this an R? Is this a PG-13? Well, there it, it might be a soft R only because uh, Shen kills them. Each time okay. they pop up, and sometimes there's a bit of blood involved. Okay. Like, like it's not like a he doesn't eviscerate them or you know chop their breasts off, or, like nothing like that. But he he'll slash them, or gotcha. he might suffocate. It might suffocate them. So it sounds like there's a little bit of almost like a happy birthday. And no, excuse me. Uh, what is that movie called? Um, happy Death Day. Happy Death Day. Thank you. It, yeah, it, it sounds bit. like there's a little bit of Happy Death Day going on here. Maybe a little bit. Now, now, just to put it into perspective, I gave it a five. IMDb gives it a three point nine. Yeah, yeah, I see that now. But you know, IMDb is historically low on these on these sorts of films. I'm I'm sold in that. I will see it. Is it now? A question: Is this one that right now you have to? It looks like it's a film that you actually have to rent. I don't see it on a streaming service. Uh, well, you can rent it, but you have to rent it for like four bucks. Like it looks like yeah, if someone wants to probably- see this right now, they pay for it. It sounds like what you're telling me is this seems like it's more of a, a wait and watch it when it's free on streaming. Yeah, wait three months. It'll be on Tubi or Prime. Yeah, okay. And do the, you know, like, you know, like I paid four ninety nine or whatever for it. You, you guys don't have to do that. Just wait a couple months because it'll be out before the end of the year when you make your lists. <laughs> and, but it's funny. It says top cast. There is literally only three people in the film. Like there's That's no funny. nosy neighbor. There's no mailman. There's no, <laughs> there's three people <laughs> in the film. So. Well, I can do you one better. Cause I can review a movie where there's one person in the film. <laughs> well, no, that's a perfect segue there, Nathan. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not entirely, but it's, uh, it, it, it's definitely a, um, uh, a, a film where you don't see more than one character on screen at a time. And uh, this is a movie that I saw all the way back last summer, actually, but it's just now getting release, uh, sort of wide release in streaming and places like that. And this is a film called We're All Going to the World's Fair. It was uh, it was marketed back when I saw it as a horror film. It originally played at Sundance, not the last Sundance, but Sundance 2021's Sundance. And I didn't get a chance to see it there. I did see it later at I. Um, I think the Chattanooga Film Festival played it, and that's when my wife and I got a chance to see it there. It's a very strange movie that uh, I want to say up front that this is another film that's being marketed as horror, but I would argue is the less that you go into this expecting a traditional horror film, the better off you will be because it's not going to play like a traditional horror film at all. I found it um, a very kind of unsettling film, but I think it's a slow burn unsettling film that's all about – psychology and uh sort of the unraveling of a mind as opposed to genre tropes and uh crazy violin chords and things like that that you expected this isn't going to feel very much like a horror movie uh but let's go ahead and get into it and the main 
character we see in this film is Anna Cobb. She is a young girl. She's a high schooler who, uh, right from the beginning, most of the film is communicated through her talking into her webcam. So it has a little bit of that feel of the found footage where we are watching always from sort of behind the perspective of of the camera and we're seeing what this person wants to convey to the camera. And then we're also picking up lots of things about them that they are probably not even aware they are, they are telling us through their actions. So it's always interesting to see filmmakers make a movie like this because they have to work within this, this perception of reality uh, that they've, they've introduced a certain number of sort of rules and limitations on what they're going to do and how they're going to show it to us. But we have Anna Cobb. She is talking directly into this right from the beginning. And she is, it's basically like she's putting up a YouTube video, right? Or she's putting something out there to let everyone know that she's about to take something called the world's fair challenge. And this is something that is happening sort of in the dark elements of the uh, internet and it has the whole movie has a bit of a creepy pasta vibe where these communities kind of spring up around horror ideas uh it, this movie is more about people who love horror than it is about horror itself and it's about how some of these lonely kids sort of are looking for a form of expression and find this community where they can sort of uh play out some of their artistic instincts with these already pre-designed ideas, right? Uh, look at something like Slender Man, where it pops up on the internet. It's a big zeitgeist. And then everyone gets to contribute a little bit to it. And then sometimes it has the opposite effect and it catches on to minds that are very susceptible and vulnerable. And there are things already going on there and something darker emerges. Like when we saw the kind of murders related to the kids that then blame the murders on Slender Man. Uh, this film doesn't go that direction. It is much more concerned, I think, with the isolation and the uh, estrangement that certain young people, particularly high school kids sort of feel that kind of pushes them into this freedom that the internet allows where they suddenly can find connectivity with people who are like-minded. And then there's that danger that comes right behind them. And when the real world pushes certain kinds of kids and certain kinds of people away when they're younger, they can sometimes tumble down dark corridors and that's what's that's what's conveyed in this film she's constantly in this dark room uh she never really leaves that room when she does leave the room and we see her come back it's almost as if she's had these strange moments of derangement uh the world's fair challenge involves very simply uh saying i want to go to the world's fair three times then it gets a little darker you draw blood from your finger and then you watch this flashing video online so it even has that feeling of something like ringu and we get right up front that this seems like it's just a gimmick it's just a passing uh thing that people are doing online it's the equivalent of a bloody mary but when then we watch anna who's in her mind uh her videos are far more important to her than, than what's true in, in terms of internet personality. She's not a personality at all. Her, her videos have hundreds of views at best, but she's fixated on this and this is allowing her to be drawn deeper and deeper into, uh, into a web where something may or may not be happening on the other side. Uh, the people she's talking to may or may, maybe friend, maybe foe, maybe they don't exist at all. And so you have to be into this movie where you're mostly watching this young woman sort of come unraveled 
in her room. She she starts to rub sort of day glow body paint all over her face, and then she she'll destroy a childhood toy, walk out of the room, come back as if she doesn't remember that she's done it, and sort of go into crazy histronics. This can be kind of irritating and kind of puts you on edge at first, but I think the movie does start to develop a certain kind of rhythm where it was unsettling to me. It takes it's a bit of a slow burn again. I don't know that a person going in for a horror film is going to enjoy it as much, but I did sort of get into her performance here. I did get into the isolation uh, that she seems to feel. A lot of these scenes take place in darkened rooms. There are scenes where she turns on the ASMR, where she's listening to the sounds of voices and the the sounds that are sort of she's using this as a way to put herself to sleep this is clear that she basically we only hear her parents we only hear a father angrily sort of yelling at her from another room we don't see him at all so we see this person it's almost like watching a person be raised and then nurtured by the internet which is, is a poor substitute for for a human being and it's both uh otherworldly at points it's all it's unsettling i think that uh, at some point we do sort of see this flip and we meet a a guy who's in his 50s he's michael j rogers plays him he's jlb and he's connecting with casey and uh he we start to see things sort of from his perspective too. And then we start to get into a little bit more of where the horror or the supernatural sort of plays into the, into the story, but it is a very ambiguous movie. I don't think you're going to walk out of this with all of the questions answered with everything on the table. And I think it is going to have a little bit of a limited appeal. Now there was a certain point when I thought this movie was going to leave me cold. I thought it was going to frustrate me and I wasn't going to walk away from it. Um, feeling satisfied, but I think that it does end up having the sort of uh, haunting quality to it that works for me. I think that the more you think about this movie, I think it will stick with you. You may walk out of it feeling slightly cold, and then the more you think about it, the more it has a little bit of a deeper impact. I don't think it's a home run, honestly. I think it's gonna it's gonna appeal to some people more than others. It did appeal to me. Um, enough that I'm, I'm giving it a, a recommendation based on the fact that I think it works as a mood piece and as, as a movie that has something interesting and specific to say about the relationship that people have in a world where, where the internet sort of, uh, erases some boundaries, puts up other boundaries and, and the way a person can lose themselves in an environment when there's no one around them who uh, who who's accepting of them, who's willing to kind of take them seriously. And this one is unsettling because you're never quite sure exactly where it's going. So I'm going to give this one a, uh, like a 6.5. I think like, again, I saw this movie back in the summer. It's continually stuck with me since I saw it. I think it has some staying power and I think it's going to work for a certain chunk of the audience that likes these cerebral, uh, films that sort of get under your skin. I'm glad you brought this one up because it's one that I found out about a little while ago and I've been meaning to see and I've kind of been tracking it down. So I'm glad that you talked about this one because I really want to see this film. Uh, I really I kind of dig that kind of ambiguity and you just kind of go with the flow and see how it unfolds. I like kind of like an atmospheric kind of film. It's kind of got a bit of mystery, maybe a little supernatural, a little bit of science. 
and it kind of just, you know, you're not quite sure what you're getting, but you want to go on the journey. That's the kind of sense I'm getting. It is. Yeah. You know, you and I watched a movie that had a, a lot more genre earmarks than this one, but had a similar sort of vibe to it called come true earlier this uh, year Oh, come true, or, yeah. la- or like late last year, I should say. And so if you, and I know you enjoyed come true, if I remember correctly. Yes. And yes. I, I think you'll enjoy this one too. I think that just, I think if you walk in understanding that you're in it for the long haul, I think that, uh, you might enjoy what's happening in the ambiance and the atmosphere. I think it's very haunting. I think people who enjoy pictures like the Blair Witch Project and things like that, I'm not saying it's exactly found footage, but if you're a fan of the found footage films, I think you definitely would want to to make sure you put this film on your list and you see it. And if you're a film of the sort of more esoteric, sort of slower, um, the the Japanese horror films from the mid-2000s, not all the ones with the scary black-haired children, but the movies like Pulse uh, and, and things like that, that, uh, that really relied upon a sense of existential dread and calamity of uh, a personal calamity, sort of uh, almost horror films that dealt with uh, depression and alienation. It's that kind of film. It, it also sounds like got a little bit of a film I reviewed about six months ago called Flashback. I had a bit of a, a bit of that kind of that was a bit of a drug film, but it is it kind of took you on a journey where you weren't quite sure where it was going, but you enjoyed the ride. Yeah, with flashback, the flashback could always sort of fall back on, and it sounds similar to the movie you just reviewed too. Uh, it sounds like that one, flashback. I remember seeing that one. I think I rated it similarly. I, I might have come in higher on this one. A flashback could, could always kind of fall back and rely upon its like sci-fi structured plot. It always had a kind of plot. This film sort of wants to cast you into the unknown a little bit more. And uh, and actually, the more I talk about it, the more I think, you know, uh, I'm probably more like a 7 verging on a 7.5 uh, in, in reality because I, I do think it's a strong film. I do think it works. I do think, though, it is going to be a limited appeal. Now, the question is, given all the discussion about the film, is this a film that at the end of the year, should it stick with you? Would you put this in your horror top 10 or would this go into your other top 10? I don't know that it will. I mean, we're, we're having a strong year right now. I want to say that yep. up front. And I don't know that it would make my either top 10 at this point. No. I think, though, that I, I feel confident putting in a horror in a horror list. I think that it has enough of those earmarks. I find the horror genre to be very big. But what I'm saying is a person who's a fan of horror who wants to go in to see a scary movie you do a little research and you'll figure out whether this is your kind of movie or not. Uh, did you see a broadcast signal intrusion bill? Yes. Yes. This is more of, I think this one, you might like this one a little bit more, but it's more in that vein of things. It's in that okay. kind of pocket of horror where it, it, kind of, it kind of rides that line. It does ride the line. It does ride the line. And I appreciate sometimes when movie does that. So a recommendation for me for, for this one. Yeah. I, I am definitely interested in, as I said, I've been looking into it. Uh, I think I could probably find it somewhere. Is it available for rent somewhere? It is. Yeah, yeah. You can rent it right now on uh, Prime for a couple of bucks, I believe. Well, I, I can't remember if it's a couple of bucks. Sometimes these movies, I had seen it before. Uh, again, you asked, you know, does it stick with you? I, I It's been almost a year now since I've seen it. A little bit, about a month or so under that. But and I, it has stuck with me, so. Yeah, I mean, you know me. I like some stuff that's sometimes outside of the mainstream, so. I, I'm, as I said, I'm really looking forward to this. I might have myself a cold beverage and watch it this weekend. You never know. So you can rent it right now for $7 or you can buy it for 13. So, um, 
Which isn't so a bad you, deal. I was going to say, if you rent it twice, then you've wasted your money. <laughs> right. <laughs> or if you're one of those people <laughs> like me who thinks you're going to rent it and may or may not get through the whole thing before the rental uh, you know, goes up, just get the $13. Just pay the $13. It's cheaper than a single movie ticket, right? That's uh, true, because what are they, about 17 18 Unless you go, well, they're not, they're not quite that high here that I know of, but uh, if you go to a matinee, you're, you're doing a little bit better. But Gotcha. All right, so my next film... Is one that's available if you have Netflix. It's on Netflix. It came out in March of this year. And it's one that, again, the history in me got me to this. I also like the actors in this. And I kind of generally like this story. It's called Against the Ice from 2022. It's an hour 42. It's directed by Peter Flint, who didn't do anything that I'm familiar with, but perhaps in his country he's known. It stars Nikolai Coaster-Waldau, who those who watch Game of Thrones will know him from that. And he's also in Oblivion. Joe Cole, who was in Black Mirror and Peaky Blinders. Uh, Haida Reed. And Sam Redford, who was in The Hurt Locker and Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom. I think most fans of Jurassic Park forget about that one. But, uh, <laughs> I haven't forgotten about it. <laughs> now, this is based on a true story. And based on the names, you can probably figure out that this movie is Scandinavian. And this one is an Icelandic and Denmark um, co-contributing film, but it's set in Iceland. And the synopsis on IMDb is, in 1909, two explorers fight to survive after they've left behind while on a Denmark expedition in ice-covered Greenland. That's kind of a, a weird way of saying. There is an expedition up in Iceland in the beginning part of the 20th century where uh, uh, Iceland and Denmark was fighting for its claim to Iceland. And there were other people or countries involved that wanted to claim it as well. So they were going up there to try to show that their piece of the earth uh, had been staked by their countrymen. And there had been a previous expedition where people had frozen to death. And so this new expedition came up trying to continue on and show that it's Danish land. So a Danish crew of explorers in Greenland, sorry, not Iceland, in Greenland, I apologize was trying to prove that Denmark's rightful claim to the country ahead of the Americans. So the Americans were claiming that it was theirs. So they were trying to lay their claim. Coster Wildow and Cole go on a fact-finding mission. Okay. So they're all up there. There's a crew of like four of them. Uh, Coster Wildow is the oldest of the four, the most experienced in this in these conditions. He knows the history. He knows the, the tundra. He knows the background. And he wants somebody to go out there with him. Well, there's two other guys in the crew, and they know that's basically uh, you're sacrificing yourself to go out there. It's, it's a no-win situation. But there's a young guy, Cole, Joe Cole, who plays a character called Ivor Iverson. And he's, he's kind of like the mechanic. He's the handyman there. He's the, the guy that does that. But he's very eager. He wants to make his name. He likes adventure. He wants to go out and do it. 
And while Costner Waldau is a little hesitant at times, he knows Cole has a background in the army and he decides to take him out because quite frankly, the others don't want to go. They're looking for evidence and to find of previous expeditions. Okay. Now they go, it's, it's a Greenland and it's the winter. It's bloody well, probably minus 30, minus 40. You get that background. The cinematography is really good. You, you really feel like you're freezing. It could be, you could be watching this in mid August in Florida and still be cold watching this. Okay. You really get a good sense of it. There's a scene where their sled dogs run off and a dog is hanging off the ledge and eventually dies. If you don't like seeing a dog die, you know, skip away for about 30 seconds. You, you really get yourself into it, okay? Now, there's not a lot of inspirational talk. Costner Wildow was a bit of a curmudgeon, you know, very about fact, do it what you got to do. And he kind of berates Cole when things kind of go wrong. But they keep plugging away. They have cold conditions. They're low on food. Dogs die. There's polar bear attacks. It's a survival film of the highest order. If you've seen Alive, where the Chilean rugby team is up in the in the Andes Mountains, you know, and they got to survive, this doesn't result in cannibalism, but you kind of get that feel. They're just doing what they got to do to get to where they can get. Hopefully, they get there. You feel it could but, easily de- you could easily tip into cannibalism. There is a feel in this <laughs> film where just about anything could potentially happen. To these guys, you realize it's written by one of their uh, written based off of one of their memoirs. So you figure they're not both going out, but you're really uncertain for a bit, <laughs> and you're not sure which one, if any of them, will survive. Right, and and the other beauty thing about this film is it documents how many days it is. So this isn't like seven days or eight days. I mean, it gets to day 165. I think by the end, it gets to about day 400. I think they've been out there for about over a year, but they don't, they don't keep it right up, uh, at least that I can remember. But eventually they get out there and they go through all kinds of harsh conditions and, and Costner Waldau's senility gets, comes into effect here as he kind of loses it as he's going through this all. And at the beginning, he was the strong one. And by the end, it's Joe Cole that becomes the strong one. So it almost comes, the the young becomes the old, and the transference of power is in effect. I'm not going to say what happens. I want you to watch to figure it out. You know, if you like Call of the Wild, if you liked Alive, if you liked, you know, stories of Perry and, and his adventures or the Franklin Expedition, you're going to dig this film. It's strong cinematography. It, it's essentially a character study of two men, their motivations, and who can keep their sanity. There's not a lot of action, but the story and the performances carry the movie. Okay? there's And at the end, there's awesome pictures of what the actual expedition and the huts looked like. Is this the best adventure film you're ever going to see? Probably not. If you like that survival aspect, you'll like a film like maybe Backcountry better. But if you kind of want one that, you know, incorporates the cold, a bit of history, some fairly strong acting, you're going to like this. I gave this a 7 out of 10. I know that you saw it, Nathan. What did you think of it? Yeah, I think it's a good movie. I think it's a it's a very good movie actually. Um it's definitely a 
pulpy survival story. It is a real story. So, I mean, I, when I say pulpy, I'm talking about the sort of vibe with which the film is made, not about the events in the film, which are largely, uh, you know, uh, one would assume to be true and do stay within the realm of reality, if not always complete believability. Uh, but when I say pulpy, I'm talking about the tone. It does try to, uh, it might be uh, seem ironic to say that the movie's overheated when it's very, very cold, but you know, <laughs> that the performances and the sense of danger and, you know, you have boils that need to be lanced at one point and you've got uh, the, 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 the fears of hypothermia at the same time that the polar bears are attacking. And at some point, Charles Dance shows up, you know, these, the, it is a one thing after another kind of feel to this movie. And they have to keep you right in that, uh, area where we want to see these two guys survive and what's going to happen next and what what will be the next crazy thing to happen to them and there is a sort of mercilessness to this environment right so these movies have that built-in sort of tension that works i think the movie is very well shot it's not an excessively high budget and they managed to make it look very good i think it's a it, it's very cinematic i think the 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 vistas look wonderful it you get across that feeling of being very cold of being in this 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 unrelenting situation. I think it's a, it's a very strong film. I enjoy it quite a bit. I I'm about with you. I think a 7.5, it's a solid movie. It doesn't quite reach into the upper echelon of the survival films. Like some of the ones that you spoke about, but I think it's real effective. The, the, the performances are really good. The filmmaking is good. It, it kind of winds tight and it keeps you right there. And I like that. It gives you, um, it gives you a lot of little details about this this expedition and what this camaraderie between these two guys as things start to deteriorate as you get to an untenable situation where it seems likely you're going to die. That's always the most interesting part of these stories, and they kind of nail that. They 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 they're able to center down and really focus in on that element of it, and I think it works. It's a it's a um, it's a winner for me. Seven point five. Yeah, it's again, it's a good one that if. You don't want to watch a horror or sci-fi, but you want to watch something on a Saturday night with your significant other or by yourself. Uh, this is a good one to throw on on Netflix. But let's put the warning out there for the people. I, I know we have a, a good friend of the show. She's been on. She's she joins me for the X Files episode. Karen Wagner. Uh, Karen, this might not be your movie. There's definitely there are definitely some dog deaths. In fact, there's this early port portent where one of the uh, one of the other explorers. Uh, tell is talking to one of the guys and he says he gives them the warning look don't don't get too attached because you might have to take the one that's that's the worst uh, you know sled dog and you might have to f- kill it feed it to the others that kind of dark element though that that dark warning sort of sets the stakes for how dangerous this environment is and the movie doesn't show you anything like that but it gives you this feeling that it's unforgiving. And I think the film pushes in on that a little bit, but you're going to know whether that's going to turn you completely off the film or not. Um, but I, I, I'd say this is a, it's a well done adventure thriller and it is going to, it gets the job done. I, I did find it amusing uh, at one point after the dogs and, and, and their uh, supplies go down the wayside, he goes, Oh, we've lost some dog food and 12 days worth of tea. <laughs> With a ration. Yeah, well, they're still at that moment where you can care about things like tea, but they don't stay in that moment very long. No, no. All righty. So, what do you got next, Mr. Bartabaugh? Okay. So, I have my next film is a movie that I think uh, the next movie has probably stirred up a, a little bit of interest and a curiosity about what exactly it is and what it's like. Uh, and I think that. 
the the concept and the idea were wild enough that we've been waiting around a few years to see what the resulting movie was. It so happens that this movie pops out at a time when we've got a lot of very good and inventive films in the in the theater and on the streaming, as you can tell by our weekly reviews, uh, that this movie has a lot to live up to. And this is called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Uh, it is the film starring Nicolas Cage, playing a fictionalized version of Nicolas Cage, who's paid a million dollars by a super fan who may or may not be a gun runner to come to an Island and hang out with him for his birthday. <laughs> and wow, that sounds wild. It is. It, well, it sounds wild. And Cage through this entire situation ends up tapping in to many of the characters he's played over the years. So the entire film has a very heavy slathered layer of Nicolas Cage arcana. So if you're someone who's seen every Nicolas Cage movie and knows every intertextual uh, reference to a Nicola, to Nicolas Cage and his work, uh, you will probably be able to navigate through this pretty well. Um, have you seen the trailers for this film? Bill? I have seen the trailers and it interests me greatly. And just as an aside, uh, anybody who doesn't know, uh, the, uh, Nicholas Cage has recently come out and said that a lot of the films he did in the last five years, he did because he had to pay off debts. But he's also said that at no point in any of these films, regardless of how good they were, he didn't mail it in. Like he always gave his best performance. And it's really nice to see Nicholas Cage get back into the groove of Hollywood films. I think this is the first film he's had released to a theater in many, many years. Um, and I think that, uh, that I could, that like in, in wide release now, Mandy and pig were sort of indie films that I didn't know if color out of space was or not. I think they fall within that range. They're indie films that probably got re- theatrical releases, but very minor ones. What I mean by a major release is, as far as I know, this one studio backing. Yeah. Yeah. has major studio backing, he, he's in there with other big stars. He's got Lionsgate distributing it. And so it's a movie. But I think he was able to get a film like this back into theaters because of the work that he's done on movies like Pig and the work that he's done on movies like Mandy and The Color Out of Space, where we see the Nicolas Cage, remember, and he's not just turning out a movie called, like, Pay the Ghost, which... <laughs> what, what, was that, what was that one I saw where he was... Like a Shaolin warrior, it was like got a sci-fi element. Yeah, you and I watched that one, and we may have re- oh. re- uh, reviewed it for the podcast. And I don't oh, remember. It was awful. Yeah, was it awful. was um, uh, jujitsu, I believe. Jujitsu. Yeah, was it. it was. Yeah. And and I, I don't know if I believe Cage when he says he brought us all to some of those movies. Um, again, I feel like I saw one a few years back called Pay the Ghost. I'm pretty sure that's what the uh, director told the uh, finance person when Cage went to get his check. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think, anyways, yes, anyways, this film is playing off of that. Those jokes we've made, and then the thing we also have to remember is at the same time that many of us may remember cage for this great swath of movies he's made. And back when he was a big star in that weird, inexplicable time in the nineties, when coming off of the back of leaving Las Vegas, he made all these action films like con air and face off and the rock. I mean, this movie is primed for that, but then there's that reality that Nicholas cage has become like a walking human meme, right? You know that the internet has created a version of Nicholas cage that younger people may know solely from the fact that he's Nicholas cage and he's meant to be weird and they don't necessarily remember or are as explicitly aware that he's a very gifted actor in a lot of ways even yeah, though like there are, there, there's a there's, sorry there's a whole group of listeners who never saw peggy sue got married 
Yes, yes. And he, he, but this is the kind of movie that wants to remind you that he wasn't guarding Tess and things like that. And there's the two layers of Nicolas Cage, the, the vampires kiss Nicolas Cage and the leaving Las Vegas Nicolas Cage. And then the guy who made guarding Tess that made it could happen to you that you would take him and put him in a very standard sort of, uh, Hollywood blockbuster and he would give you a little bit of a different flavor you know a movie like Con Air is weirder for having Nicolas Cage in there with his crazy flowing Jesus locks and he's you know uh casting these goofball looks to the side as things blow up around him or his performance or, or should I say Nicolas Coppola Yes. Yeah. Well, they you see this is you're in the right wavelength because we we get those jokes uh, there is a version of they, so let's let's get into the plot a little bit because there's not a lot to the plot, but then it creates these varying layers to it. So he's playing a version of himself, and he's uh, it's the Nicholas Cage has been passed over for a lot of roles. He's not getting the kind of roles he wants. He is deep in debt. He's got things to pay off. He's living in a hotel that he can barely afford to pay for. He's um, he's got an ex-wife and a teenage daughter. Now in reality, Nicholas Cage does not have a teenage daughter in this film. He does. He's, ex- he's estranged from her and uh, his family is, you know, he, he's neglected the family and his ties to them are frayed to say the least. And he's decided he's going to retire from acting because of a lot of things that have just gone on. He's not having a very good time of it anymore. And then his agent, Richard Fink, who's played by, uh, Neil Patrick Harris, who in the trailer looks like he might be playing Neil Patrick Harris, but he wasn't. Uh, he all he says, "Hey, there's this one million dollar offer from a billionaire playboy who wants you to come to his island and be the guest of honor for his birthday party." And this guy is, is Javi Gutierrez. He's played by Pedro Pascal, who's obviously big again right now, or not? Excuse me, he's big right now, uh, mostly because of the Mandalorian. And Pascal, though, uh, in the film, he plays this billionaire who it's not entirely certain how he's made all his money. And it starts to look like possibly he's a gun runner and a shady dude. And there's a there's a whole bunch of trouble sort of circling him. And the opening scene of the film involves a young girl who's kidnapped. Uh, she's a daughter of a politician and she gets kidnapped while she's watching Con Air and she's kidnapped while that song that uh, How Do I Live <laughs> is playing on the soundtrack as she is taken. And so you get the kind of vibe that the movie's going for. Of course, Cage goes out to meet Javi on his way over to the uh, when he's being flown on the plane the rock is playing on the plane when he gets there javi has this amazing collection of nicholas cage memorabilia that involve that also includes a full uh size wax statue of nicholas cage from face off with dual guns in his hands and then the chainsaw from mandy even makes an appearance so this is the kind of movie you're talking about when he gets there and is interacting with javi the movie loosens up a little bit and you have cage and Pascal sort of developing a very fun camaraderie that, that takes the film and starts to put it into an interesting perspective where we're watching. This is really kind of by the number screwball movie in a lot of ways. This isn't quite the weird multi-layered satire that it seemed to be given the title and the, the posters and all of the uh, advertising materials had really made this look like it's going to be a very bizarre out there Nicolas Cage movie. I think that what it does is it's it's running largely off of those people 
who know the Nicolas Cage of the memes. The movie seems to be built for that because then the plot gets into an, a, a deal where the CIA uh, sort of picks up on the fact that Cage has now found his way into the proximity of Javi. And hey, what if we can make him an asset that can can sort of get the goods on this guy and maybe help him help them find this kidnapped uh this kidnapped politician's daughter and so at that point you have tiffany haddish uh coming into the plot she's one of the cia agents and uh and Ike baron holtz is the other one and the two of them try to find a way to get close to him one of them is complimenting oh i loved you in crudes too and that's part of the the the, the joke too is that nicholas cage has been in enough movies that everyone has one they can connect to there's a scene where javi talks about uh in, in wells up with tears talking about how much guarding test meant to him because he was able to connect with it to his dead. Uh, he was able to connect with his dying father over guarding tests. And uh, in through all of this, Cade sorts of has to reflect on who he is as an artist and as a person and as a father and all of this stuff. And the plot is very much, I think at that point by the numbers in terms of this kind of goofy uh, action adventure comedy plot that doesn't really go a lot of places. Uh, it's mostly as a vehicle to have all these weird references to Nicolas Cage over and over again. And the problem I think is that while it's fun to watch Cage and Pascal, particularly they almost kind of like rescue the movie and make it this buddy comedy. I love those parts, but I wanted a much weirder movie than we got here. There's one other element that I haven't said a lot about, and that's that Nicolas Cage does have an alter ego who is uh, the, the, the Nicholas Coppola, <laughs> Nicholas Kim Coppola, Nikki. He's an evil alter ego that shows up dressed like the guy from Wild at Heart in the Vampire's Kiss. And he's the one who's constantly, he's like, he's like a Cage's id dialed to 11. And he's sort of the devil angel on his shoulder that keeps kind of, uh, at one point they have a big drop down fight with one another. At another point they make out together. So you're getting that, but that stuff while all of this sounds weird and wild and wonderful, it's really in service of a movie that isn't necessarily made for the people that love to wait around through all of this Nicolas Cage trash to find the little gems where he 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 shows that he has this this talent that he can sort of transform himself and these movies that rise above the the muck the the people that this movie seems to be made for are not the same people that are going to probably catch half of these references because they aren't passionate enough about those other movies, about those raising Arizonas, about a movie like pig or a movie like Mandy. These are the kind of people that I imagine would have turned pig and Mandy off because this is the Nicholas is the meme Nicholas cage. This is the 40 seconds of him screaming, not the bees or whatever in the wicker, <laughs> by the way, not the bees is actually uttered in this film in case you're wondering. Uh, and so, this is the kind of movie it's got a lot of, of quick asides, but I don't think they're as witty as they think they are. And so the movie really disappointed me in one way. It's perfectly fine. I think to watch And again, there's this kind of middle section where I wanted to see more of what was going on with cage and Pascal. They had a real chemistry going, but the movie is based on let's show you weird Nicholas cage, but we don't really want to do anything with him. He's like a party favor, right? It's sort of like, uh, the entire movie reminds me of when you were a kid in the summer and you got really bored and playing with your regular toys wasn't enough. So you went to, you went to the, uh, 
the closet where all the toys that you hadn't played with in years were, and you pulled them all out and you thought, remember this, remember this, this is going to be epic. And by the time you assembled them all on the, on the ground or on the bed and got ready to do something with them, you were so tired from tearing all this stuff out that you had no energy left to actually do anything fun with them. And that's kind of what this movie feels like. It's like pulling out the Nicolas Cage arsenal and you get it all lined up. And then the the only energy you have left is to sort of like, take these things up and smash them into each other for a few minutes and then roll them back in the box and put them back in the closet. <laughs> yeah. That sounds great. Like it's kind of the, <laughs> that was the not what I was trying to convey, but <laughs> well, no, well, I, well, all I'm saying is, you know, the, you've got all the, the, the whole swath of Nicholas cage here. Like you've got the over the top Nicholas cage. You've got the self deprecating Nicholas yeah. cage. You've got the serious acting Nicholas cage. You've got the bit of reality of what he's like now, Nicolas Cage. I think the thing you're only lacking is really like the sincere. Like he's sincere. He's 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 obviously game for this, but I think the people that made this film were so concerned about how many Nicolas Cage references can we get in here? How can we make this weird Nicolas Cage the guy that you watch the TikTok clips for? And they what they forgot to bring to the table was a director and someone that knew how to use him for what for what new he could bring not for him as a as a as a gimmick and i think that's the problem here this is the people that you know is these the gimmick nicolas cage that's not without it's fun and you can't put some of these people in this movie and not have fun with it you're go- i think there's a level of fun where i enjoyed myself to a point but again i've recently seen some pretty interesting movies that take wild premises and just go for go for the moon with them and this one doesn't it's almost too uh, it's too content just to sort of play around on the surface and you get you get frustrated with it because you think this could have been so much more. And I think that what really is only the jokes you've seen in the trailers, there are maybe one or two other references. But what you get in the trailers, there is a, there's a scene where it's almost like watching Nicolas Cage do his version of the saint where he has to sort of go undercover and put on all this like latex and stuff to sort of, uh, you know, to to be a mole at one point. That that stuff is still fun and entertaining. But you don't walk away from it like you do from a movie like Mandy or a movie like Colorado Space where you feel like you've got someone channeling Nicolas Cage's very specific um, strangeness and his energy. And you get the energy here, but you get the idea that nobody knew what to do with it. Yeah, I personally like the mom and dad Nicolas Cage. <laughs> there he's used in the service of he, he's almost like the splinter that you've planted at the center of what's otherwise somewhat conventional and you let his weirdness spread. And here his weirdness is the only thing you care about. Uh, and it's harder, I think, to generate something interesting from that. I'd watch, I'd watch pig two or three times again before I watched this movie again, uh, because I think that film knew, knew that it needed him in a different way and was able to set into his talents. Here he's a little bit of a joke. He's in on the joke. That's fine. But just referencing Nicolas Cage movies isn't as interesting as finding something juicy for him to do and let him loose. And so maybe I missed it. What what level or what grade would you give this? I'm in about a five point five with this. It's um, it is really for me. It's a middle of the road. You you may enjoy watching it, but it's just it isn't what it could have been if you had really assembled the pieces here. This could have been. This could have been a big return to form for him, I think. I think it's going to be a passing oddity, really. It's going to be a movie that people are, that'll have some curiosity about. 
Uh, it's not gonna, it's not gonna join the ranks of his most recent movies, but I mean, I, you know, some of his more typical genre efforts like national treasure, I have more fun watching that movie again than I would have watching this one. Yeah. I mean, I'm honestly more curious and looking forward to the upcoming one where he plays Dracula. Yes. Yes. Okay. I will give you that. I, I agree. And I think that the potential there is they're not, it's not just about making the, making fun of the fact that he's Nicolas Cage and here, that's what this is siphoning off of. And it's trying to make this for a group of people that aren't necessarily Nicolas Cage fans. And yet, if you're not a Nicolas Cage fan, I don't know that you're going to want to sit through all of the myriad references in this film. You know what I mean? Now, I'm just w- wondering, like, for the Dracula film, is he going to be closer to Gary Oldman Dracula, or is he going to be George Hamilton Dracula? Or he could be Vampire's Kiss, Nicolas Cage oh. vampire, running around screaming, oh, I'm a vampire with plastic teeth hanging out of his mouth. Who knows? <laughs> I've seen some of the publicity photos, or not even publicity photos, just pictures of him standing around in his You can't tell whether there. he's Dracula or Liberace in those pictures, really. No, a lot. I think, I think he's got uh, like a velvet cape. So I'm not he quite does have sure a velvet cape. I mean, that, that seems about right. All right, Bill, you want to take All us right. home with the last review of the evening? Yes, last review of the evening is one that I watched, again, just dinking around on uh, YouTube. Uh, I wanted to make sure I kind of got a fantasy sci-fi genre film. And I saw, who's in it? William Shatner. Hadn't seen it. Had to watch it. Had to tell Nathan. <laughs> so- and I know the Shatner, you know, he's Canadian, good for that. And also he's got a whole slew of fans who will watch anything Shatner. There's a lot of so Shat not, in this movie, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> I don't know where you're going to go with that. but uh, So we'll go with a movie from 1972, a made-for-TV movie called The People. Now, there's a couple different versions of it on YouTube. They're both of about the same quality. You're not quite getting a Criterion Collection version of this. (laughs) But it is watchable. So I'm going to go to the Rotten Tomatoes description on this because the one on uh, IMDb is just rambling. And uh, and this one is very brief. So you get your choice of the two. A new school teacher in rural California is shocked to discover that her pupils possess otherworldly powers. Okay. So they call this drama slash sci-fi. I would almost consider it more fantasy than sci-fi, to be quite honest with you here. Uh, It's directed by a man called John Cordy. And John Cordy did a large variety of movies, or but mostly it was television work. He did do, I don't know, uh, Nathan, if you recall the show, The Ewok Adventure. Yes, yeah, there were uh, the the movies, right? The movies from the yeah. 80s? Yeah, he, he, did, he, did, uh, the, he did one called Oliver's Story. He did multiple episodes of Sesame Street. He's, he's got a really interesting background if you look into John Cordy. But I guess he's one of these like working man directors. You know, no job is too small, just keep on chugging. He died only about a month ago. Oh, 85. Yeah, March 9th. Now, the, the lead actress is one that you might know, Kim Darby. Kim Darby, for example, was in True Grit, but was also in Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. Was she? she yes. She's she's all over the map. Yeah. And I think the other big Kim Darby movie I always think about is another TV film, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark from around the same time frame, right? 1972 or thereabouts? 72 or thereabouts, yeah. 
I, I, like she's if you look up Kim Darby, you might not know the name, but you look at it and you go, yeah, okay, I know Kim Darby. And of course, there's the Shat William Shatner's in it. There is Diane Varsi, who was in a, a couple other films you would know, uh, Peyton Place. She was in Compulsion. She was in the Roger Corman film Bloody Mama. And Dan O'Herlihy. Dan O'Herlihy, I'll always remember from RoboCop. He was in The Last Starfighter, and he was in Halloween 3. Halloween 3. So we got a couple of the Halloweens here. Well, <laughs> you, you figure you have Darby and Curse of Michael Myers. You got Hurley and 3 and Shatner and all of them, right? <laughs> in a sense. Oh, yeah. Sh- Shatner stumbling around from visiting hours and uh, Devil's Reign. And well, well he's in all the Halloween movies as the mask, right? Oh, that, oh that's true. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Now, this movie for made for TV was based on a Zena Henderson novel. Or it could have been a short story. It could have been a novelette. It was an ABC movie of the week. Okay. So enough of the talk about it. Kim Darby plays a character called Melody Amerson. She goes to a a remote village that's very rural to teach in a school. She's obviously gone through the public system, wants nothing to do with it, wants to find a nice country school that's kind of off the beaten path. She's found it. And it's a, basically a one-room schoolhouse. But she's got some background to her, and she's got some experience at it. The people in the town seem strict. They're traditional. I wrote down they're odd, almost cold in their approach. The town is called Bendo. I think I call that right, Bendo. The people are odd, but they do have a certain charm to them. You might almost call them, you know, akin to Amish or Mennonite. But not exactly. You want to know more about what's going on with it. Because at surface level, it's just uh, a younger woman coming to teach kids in a rural town, you know, everything that they need to learn about. So that's, you know, you got your little house on the prairie end of it. But you know there's more to it. So William Shatner is a doctor. And he notices the, the locals are immune to certain diseases. But he's not quite sure why. Nobody ever gets sick. The kids aren't allowed to sing. They're not allowed to play sports or music. And when they walk, they drag their feet. And you're noticing and you're going, well, why? Nothing is ever explicitly said. There's a lot of intimation and inferencing that's going on here. The movie is slowly paced, but I liked it. It kind of added to the mystery. You just kept watching. You know, the film's only what is it, an hour 20 or something in that, an hour 14. So it's not going to tax your time. And because you know it's only 74 minutes, you, you want to keep watching it because you want to know what's going on with this town. Why are these kids being so odd? Why are the adults? You almost got a village of the damned kind of vibe to it. What What's going on here? But Darby loves teaching. And the kids uh, want, uh, sorry, Darby loves teaching. And she wants to know if she can help them kind of get out of their funk of what they are and enlighten them in some of the activities and subjects that she's trying to teach them. She's trying to teach them music. And she's trying to teach them some of the drama and these sorts of things. And there's one scene in the schoolhouse where the musical instruments just start to levitate. And all the kids are just having a real kick out of this, seeing a clarinet float in the air and seeing a flute float in the air. And I don't want to give too much away. 
I'll step around a few things because I want you to watch the film. All I'll say is there's things that lift in the air and there's certain people with special powers. But there is, what I wrote down was a footloose kind of vibe. (laughs) Let the country kids have their music. (laughs) Let them have their music, okay? Um. You know, it's almost gets the feel. It's this is 1972, so you're at the uh, uh, outer edge of Charles Manson commune. Now, that's not to have a sinister end of it, but there is a 70s hippie commune kind of vibe. Everybody working well together for the common good. There's a nice charm to the story. I wrote down. Now, get this combination: Little House on the Prairie, Mary Poppins, Strange Encounters of the Third Kind. And I'm not going to tell you why. Just watch it. It's almost sci-fi and fantasy. I gave it 7 out of 10. It's not going to be anything that blows your mind. But I did find it cute and charming. I don't know. What did you think about it, Nathan? That's a that's a fun combination. I thought you were going to throw scanners in there at the end. Oh, or something. Scanners, well, it's not, which no it's not. Yeah, this is not a this is not horror in the least. No, um, no. it's uh, it's really a lot like a longer, longish Twilight Zone or an Outer Limits episode. I think it has that vibe. Uh, that might even be giving a little not too much away, but I think that the movie does kind of it, it dances right along that drama about this kind of insular community with these kids who clearly have some sort of uh, abilities that are beyond the natural. And you see the way that Darby and Shatner interact with them. And I think the movie is about exactly what you would expect from a TV movie of this time frame. I love these sorts of movies because uh, TV movies, there's a certain moodiness to the way they're shot and made. Right. So even when these movies don't have a great budget a year later, they did, uh, don't be afraid of the dark. And then around the same time, we also had gargoyles with Cornell wild and those movies, they're not made for a lot of money. They're rather done on the cheap, but there's a charm to them. That's hard to ignore. And a lot of times you actually had an, a bit of above average writing on them as well. And I think the people, as you point out, uh, it's based off of a Zena Henderson book. It has a little bit of a higher, uh, pedigree. I know what you're saying when you say that the story is not exactly science fiction. I, I would definitely say it's not science fiction of a very heady caliber in the sense that it's not um, extremely uh, science driven. But I do think there is a kind of story here that it has its origins in classic sci-fi and particularly the kind of sci-fi that Rod Serling was a big fan of, right? That uh, you'd have you take sort of some situational elements and then blend them into the story. And this is very, it's very introspective, wouldn't you say, Bill, uh, that it tries to, on a lighter note, deal with those themes about uh, what makes a person a person and where does humanity stand in the greater kind of scope of things. I feel like uh, this movie, these days, if we saw a version of it, we'd see something more uh, like an M. Night Shyamalan story, you know? It, It feels like it would go that direction. He, what I like about this is it doesn't denigrate yes. the, the people. That's all I'll say. It doesn't denigrate them. It kind of reminds me of the kind of story that if you were if you were back in grade six or seven and a teacher wanted to kind of introduce you to sci-fi fantasy. It's an excellent point, yes. This could be one that you could read with all certainty where it's wholesome enough, but it's got enough of the elements where you'll go, 
This isn't exactly a Reader's Digest novel. Yes, it, you. The way you might introduce a, a, a child who will on to be interested in science fiction to a short story by Ray Bradbury or Ursula K. Le Guin or something like that. And I think it's got a bit of that animal farmish. Yeah, I think you're right on tap there. It's a gentle, uh, early science. It has the feel of a, of a of an early science fiction story. There's not a a lot of um, violence or even action per se in the story. The movie is more about ideas, uh, and the ideas aren't excessively complex, but they work. I think it's a fun movie, and I think it's a fun TV movie that uh, feels a little pedestrian in the way it's made, but I think Darby and Shatner are fun in the movie. I think Her Hurley's fun. I think that the movie is a good sort of it's a great movie to watch with a younger audience that maybe hasn't experienced some of the films that you already mentioned as touch points for this one. I liked it. Uh, you know, I, is it great? No, I'm going to give it about a 6.5, but I think it's, um, it's a perfectly fun, uh, TV movie that is representative of the kinds of movies being made at that time. It's just a little too, um, it's almost Golly too G. gentle. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. It is. You said Little House on the Prairie, and I really couldn't shake that from my head while watching the movie, is it is a little too golly gee. It's just a little too sort of cute and kixotic, and it, it deal, it's a little too um, quaint in a lot of ways. But that being said, I like where the story goes. I like what the story's actually about, and I think that the movie – could have focused on that a little bit more than it does. It's almost a little too much of a lead up to the reveals. And then I feel that the you kind of figure it out, you figure it out. And I think that the reveal should have happened earlier because they could have done. The film should have been more about what everyone does with that knowledge and how that, and there's a little bit of that, but I wanted the film to be more focused on that. I would have been fine learning this secret about 10 to 15 minutes into this film. And then let's see how that affects everybody else in the world in this community and then the world at large, right? Yeah, this this would be a great in the in the horror genre, we talk about gateway films. Yeah. And you talk about, you know, Watcher in the Woods and these and Frankenstein and that kind of thing. This would be a perfect gateway sci-fi story slash yeah if you're watching twilight zone or outer limits with your kids in fact this one isn't that much longer you know you had a season of the twilight zone that ran about an hour or in that 45 minute time frame uh outer limits was like that this one is not that much longer than those you know so it's a slightly padded episode of the twilight zone or the outer limits yeah as i say watch it with your kids Uh, nathan did you watch it with your kids I did not, but that we started to watch it together. They are tired, went to bed, and I wanted to finish it. But I have full intention of showing it to them because I'm curious to see how they piece it together as it goes along. And I'm curious to see their reactions because I think my kids have been exposed to enough of some of the science fiction fancy. I'm curious to see how they deal with a movie like this that is, as you point out, it's 1972. So it's above above or before the curve where Spielberg and the Camerons start coming in and making this more – um, visually sophisticated sci-fi films, and this is a movie that's a, like we said, it's a little more quaint, it's a little more story focused, a little more gentle. And looking looking at the cover that the poster on IMDb, I don't know about you, Nathan, it reminded me of the kid in Witness. 
It uh, well that that poster <laughs> art's horrible. It looks like it's folk, terrible. Yeah. It looks like folk art or something. I don't know if that's what they're going for, but the the, the movie's better than that for sure. Yes, yes. Because the the poster almost deterred me, but I was like, no, I'm committed to this. I'm, I'm glad you pulled it up. Um, and uh, I I'm I'm inter- I was entertained by it. I was also entertained by the suggestion you had that we need to do an episode about Canadian sci-fi. <laughs> To, yeah, I've I found a few here and there, so I think we'll we get might to have that. to do our list of our best Canadian science fiction uh, films. Well, that that might be a pretty short list, but yeah, I don't know, um, man. I think there's more out there. Uh, th- there was a period of time, and particularly even more recently than not, where I would watch a movie. It would be interesting and weird to me. And I first question I would ask my wife is, "Well, did they make this in Canada?" And ninety percent of the time, the answer was yes. <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, my number one is Cube. Now I'm walking away. Cube, you will. Well, that, you know, though, you mentioned that, that that point in time where Cube was out. There were actually Canada was producing quite a few interesting science fiction films in that in that um, yeah. vein. But was there anything else that you wanted to mention oh, before we kind of wrap no, this up? No, I don't think so. I um, The um, only other thing I will say is I finally got the chance to see X. Yeah. What did and, you think? And, and I really enjoyed it. But it, I can understand why it's divisive because the first hour is not like the last 45 minutes and it takes a while. You kind of get a few snippets here and there, but you really have to wait for something to turn after about an hour. So in the first hour, you're basically watching a bunch of, you know, early 20 somethings and one forty something make a porno which I found amusing just kind of seeing how they were setting it up and how they were hoodwinking the couple there. And you kind of know there's something up with that couple. And then when it flips, but you get into some of the feelings of, you know, older sexuality <laughs> it kind of plays into this. Yeah. Um, um, 75 year old, butt and, and someone under a bed, but then you also get into some really darkness. And there were a couple times I had to rewind, you know, because you, if you blink, you miss something. Yeah, I think it's a very well put together movie, like we said in the review. And it, yeah. what I liked is all the characters had uh, development and all the characters had agendas and things they wanted. And the movie spun out of that, not out of some just random threat that didn't make any sense when they put the pieces together, the movie stems out of all the characters and what's going on. And it makes an interesting um, appeal to the, well, what's the difference between reality and fantasy and desire and actual, uh, you know, human interaction and all these things, but they're just kind of, these are just things that are built into a very solid little horror story. It's not highfalutin. It's not, elevated or anything like that it just takes its time to build its characters and its theme and like you said it kind of does have a little bit of a bait and switch but you can see that coming i think it's the more of the true precursor not precursor i think it's 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 a better uh sort of um descendant of the texas chainsaw massacre than the last texas chainsaw massacre movie yeah it's it's a film that you know, like I can see some detractors in terms of like, if you've never seen a 1970s adult film, it can be disturbing in that way. Or if you're not into some of the, I'll say gore or violence that happens later, that might bother you as well. But you kind of throw that together as almost, you know, make it one big stew. And it's a really interesting watch. I can really see this making my top 10. I gave it an 8 out of 10. I I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I gave it an 8.5, I think, when we reviewed it on the last show. It's a very strong movie. I think it's one of Ty West's best movies. Yeah, since maybe I saw The Devil. 
House of the Devil, yeah. Or yeah. sorry, House of the Devil. Sorry, House of the Devil. Yeah. Although I saw the Devil is a very good movie too. <laughs> Just oh, that is a good movie. A very yeah. different kind of film. For our next segment of our Phantom Galaxy review, I'm going to bring in Trey Whetstone, who is uh, joining us a lot lately for our review episodes. Partially because Trey's seen a lot of the new movies, sometimes more than new movies than I have. <laughs> Uh, Trey, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Nathan. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me on. It's always exciting to get to talk stuff that's not necessarily horror. Yeah, you're becoming a staple. Well, again, you're one of the many staples of the Phantom <laughs> Galaxy. Are are a cadre of uh, of uh, personalities, <laughs> our cabinet of curiosities. But Trey comes to us from the Screaming Through the Ages podcast and. Uh, you got some awesome content up over there. Uh, I've been on there. Bill has been on there uh, a, a time or two. And then you also, you've got an episode that just went up, I believe, where you just started dipping your toe into the Hitchcock waters, right? Yeah. And the funny thing about that is um, I'm doing the Hitchcock stuff and I'm doing the early years. So up through like 1950 or whatever. And I think I've got more messages saying like, Hey, let me know when you cover Vertigo or hey, let me know when you cover Rear Window or hey, let me <laughs> and I'm like that's going to be a little while, but I'll keep that in mind, but people are definitely interested in the latter half of Hitchcock's career, but uh yeah, they call me when you do Jamaica Inn. I bet you weren't expecting that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that's, that's actually kind of a, have you seen that one? I haven't. No. It, it involves pirates. I I really only know it because I always talk about the Senator Theater that's in Baltimore and it's the big uh old school movie house. And then when I was in college and we lived on the, in the dorms, we were about like, we we're at Towson university and we were like 10 minutes from the Senator. And, uh, they did to celebrate their anniversary. Cause I believe the theater opened in 1939. They would do quarter movies, uh, all week from 1939. And one night they were playing, um, Jamaica Inn, but being the like, scruffy college kids we were we couldn't get six quarters <laughs> amongst <laughs> the six people it was, it was a quarter cost a quarter to get in and then still had to let one of us in for free but um jamaica inn is kind of a fun movie but it's weird because i it, i don't think i've ever seen hitchcock candle pirates before so you'll have that to look forward to yeah um no that sounds like an interesting one um i probably won't cover it on the show i think i'm trying to stick to thrillers but i might watch that because there's a few okay. that well, I, it is a thriller it's not it's not thriller. a I'm, it's not like i yeah i probably should have pointed out it's not like captain blood or something okay. like that it's not a swashbuckler i think it's slightly more modern pirates but the concept is they're dealing with pirates like so they're uh but it is definitely it's still in the thriller vein it's a hundred percent thriller so i yeah. might watch that just because it sounds like an interesting change of pace from like the spy political espionage thrillers i'm on right yeah. now of his <laughs> but it's not it's not divorced from his style of suspense yeah i i i'm selling it different it's it doesn't take place in like the you know eight, 1600s on a sailing ship yeah, or yeah, something yeah. like that so okay no i'll definitely i might check that out and do a little little segment on that next episode i'm doing with that one so yeah i appreciate the recommendation on that but uh, as adult as it was, uh, but <laughs> the the thing that we are here to talk about tonight, a couple of different movies. Uh, in fact, we will in a few moments here or a few minutes or heck, you know, knowing us probably 25 minutes. We'll be talking <laughs> about the Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness movie directed by Sam Raimi, which just came out this past weekend. And Trey, I know both you and I got a chance to see and. Uh, I actually saw it in 3D. The first time I've seen a movie in 3D in quite a while. Um, no, that's awesome. I have, I have it. Like I told you, the 3D kind of uh, last thing I saw in 3D, my wife and I went and saw um, Die One for Murder 
with the old 3D glasses and the 3D just hurts my eyes. But yeah, they do um, like retro revivals of Hitchcock every October here. So, yes, tr- that's awesome. yeah, we tried to go. We went a couple years and then we saw Rear Window and Dial M for Murder in back to back years. But yeah, they had the 3D glasses and everything last time we saw that. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, and I actually got to see that in 3D at a theater downtown. My wife took me. It was playing around my birthday. I didn't know it. And my birthday, she took me there and we got the old school red and white, red and uh, not red, red and white, and the red and blue glasses to watch it that way. Um, the only other time I think I'd seen something with those red and blue glasses was they did a revival at the Maryland Film Festival years ago of The Creature from the Black Lagoon. And, and John Waters was there. That was pretty. That was pretty <laughs> neat. But so to jump back to Jamaica for a minute, it does play take place in the 1800s, but it is still a thriller. It takes place in Nin, where the pirates come in and out of, and Charles Lawton is in it. So there's a good reason to okay. see it. Um, but anyway, the first movie we're going to talk about has been out for a few weeks now, and uh, it continues that trend I think of having this spring where there are a lot of really interesting movies coming out that that maybe weren't 100% mainstream but I think really do uh, are perfect for the audience you know for for most of the time we get movies aimed squarely at kind of kids right yeah. in the comic book movies and then once in a while every once in a while somebody will make a movie for adults and then you have that other tier somewhere in the middle which is sort of the you know I'm not making comic book movies I'm making graphic novel movies <laughs> and I feel like we've had a lot of those movies whether they're based on a property or not that have that graphic novel feel right so we've had the batman i feel like everything everywhere all at once we had perfectly snapped into that and then we had uh um the the new film from robert eggers the northman which i think also kind of fits perfectly into that that headspace kind of the graphic novel headspace uh and we both did get a chance to see that i know it's been out for a little bit uh, now but do you want to set that one up for us trey Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the synopsis I have here reads that uh, Prince Amleth is on the verge of becoming a man when his father is brutally murdered by his uncle, who kidnaps the boy's mother. Two decades later, Amleth is now a Viking who's on a mission to save his mother, kill his uncle, and avenge his father, as you would see in the trailer. Um, (laughs) But this is the latest from director Robert Eggers, who has done The Witch and The Lighthouse. Um... And I can honestly say, Nathan, it still has a lot of this movie has a lot of Edgars in it, even if it is on a higher scale and higher budget. Um, And I love what you said about we're getting these and we're kind of getting a lot of palate cleansers from the normal blockbusters we would get. Um, The movies you mentioned, of course. And then this one's a little bit of that. um, I feel like you it scratches a little bit of that itch that the uh, the last duel did last year. It's the same kind of like adult oriented kind of period piece movie. And unfortunately, like the last duel seems like the same amount of people are seeing going to see it. Unfortunately, these movies just are not connecting. I don't know if um, I read something interesting the other day where they were talking about, you know, cinephiles are not going back to the movies. And that's why these kind of films are struggling or the older people are not going back to the movies. Um, But the Northman is a very interesting movie, and I don't want to get into too many Spoilers about this, but um, I think it's an interesting movie because this is not one you're going to go in if you're just looking for a period piece about Vikings just, you know, constantly at war and constantly at battle. There's a lot of drama going into this one and a lot of, you know, getting building up characters and this one, our main character's journey. Um, And, 
yeah, um, <laughs> I, I, there's so much stuff I want to say, but I think the I think first and foremost, I think the cast is pretty good in this. I am always a fan of Anya Taylor Joy, but I think she did an excellent job, and I think she has really good rapport with Skarsgård in this. Um, what are your thoughts on kind of I guess the Northmen in general, Nathan, <laughs> and that and the casting? Well, I agree with you, and but one of the things that's inter- interesting about some of the movies we just mentioned is that. Um, and we mentioned adults going to the theater. Yes, I think that this is definitely a movie that's made for a more an adult audience, obviously. But at the same time, all of these movies really are big summer movies in a sense, mm-hmm. like they, they, in, in their heart. Like The Northman is still a big, brutal Viking uh, epic. There's a lot of brutality in it. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of action. It has the same structure that you would see in a film like that. It slows down for its characters. But I think if you were to put someone in front of this who loves like those uh, some of those old cheesy uh, even '80s sword and sorcery, or not that there's a lot of sorcery or even sword sometimes in this yeah. film, but that that you know the fan of the Conan the Barbarian can sit and watch this film and I think appreciate it on those levels and yet pick up that there's something else a little bit different going on with it. And I think that's what I appreciate is to me this one particularly, uh, unlike Edgar's other two films, which I love. Are, but were very um, idiosyncratic, I think would be safe to say. Mm-hmm. You know, they were very much what they were. Yeah. Uh, this one is too, but it does tend to be, I think this one's going to hit a little bit more mainstream because it's like a heavy metal song come to life, right? Or like I mentioned, like a graphic novel. It has that driving pulse. The story is relatively simple. It doesn't get caught into so much like psychological esoterica like the lighthouse did, yeah. uh, which which was its own, you know, that movie was striving to alienate you and this movie i don't think is working on the same wavelength in that it's very much about mythology and myth and i think i mentioned that the thing i appreciate about edgar's in the three films he's made is that uh he doesn't make movies about a time period if that makes sense so the witch is not about what it was like to live in puritanical north america or you know uh, uh colonized america right it's about the what people who were living in colonized America thought it was like at the time, (laughs) you know? Uh, So if you watch the witch and what, 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 what that, that era's Puritans would have thought was happening or was, was likely to happen to them is what the witch captures the way the people that lived in those times thought and told stories about their experience. The same is true of the lighthouse. Like the lighthouse isn't what I'm sure it was like for uh, a realistic depiction of, of kind of uh, waterlogged sailors stuck up in a lighthouse, you know, uh, going crazy. But, you know, if you're going crazy in a lighthouse, this movie might make sense to you. Uh, you know, and the same thing is true of the Northmen. The Northmen is trying to depict what it was like in this kind of Viking era. It's depicting what the Vikings thought this was like. You know, the, the, their myths, their mythology, their belief system is shot through the film. It doesn't make it fantasy, but it adds a texture to the movie that's different. You know, it 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 takes the beliefs and the kind of superstitions of that this it, these groups of people that would have thought a little bit differently than we do, and it makes it it weaves them into the fabric of its film. So you're not watching fantasies, you're watching sort of projections of myth and folklore, which I find completely fascinating. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I, before listening to that, I just thought Eggers was doing these period pieces so he could sneak in his toilet humor whenever he wanted. 
but um okay <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he launched most of it in the lighthouse yeah, you yeah know? <laughs> no <laughs> no i want to um go over a couple things you said nathan as responses and i think it was you that i had sent the um or i told you about an article right where <laughs> i love that yes <laughs> where they were talking about the um how the studio had kind of came to edgar's and kind of pushed back to get get a different kind of vibe out of this movie to make it more in entertaining and um more um accessible i guess is what i want mainstream and he said that was actually good for him because when he was making i think what he said when he was making the witch like entertainment was like the seventh uh thing on his list of when he was making that movie and with the lighthouse it was like 15th or something on his checklist so <laughs> he wasn't setting out it's totally believable yeah. <laughs> He wasn't setting out to make entertaining films. He was setting out to make, you know, the movies he wanted to. And I think he did. He was overall happy with the Northman. But that's that's I, this is by far his most mainstream and accessible movie. Um, and then another thing you were talking about is the melding of like the fantasy, but the brutality, too. I think he takes a good uh, I think he does a good job of taking the kind of enchanting nature of some of the more mythical elements of the Vikings and the the Norsemen and all that and mixing that with the just realistic brutality that went on in those times and with these people. So I think there's a good blend of that. Also, um, what were your thoughts? Did you recognize, because I know they were pumping it up in this film early on in the trailers. Did you recognize Bjork in this? Um, I did like I, in the trailer, I saw her, her and I was like, wait, I know this person. Who is it? And then like, but I, uh, and then looking up like, oh, it's Bjork. But I, and I'm pretty familiar with her and I've followed her career. And, you know, so I know her pretty well, but like, I don't know her personally, <laughs> but you know, I've never spoken to her. We don't have tea or anything or whatever it is that she drinks. And the, uh, but the, the movie does definitely use her in such a way where it's, she's this haunting sort of, uh, atmosphere ambiance to her i don't feel like she's directly recognizable if you're a person that recognizes bjork to begin with to be fair it fits in perfectly with her every other weird thing she's done if you know if you know her work yeah i loved her character in this as brief or whatever as it may have been she's a perfect encapsulation of that thing i'm talking about where she should work as fantasy Mm -hmm. but she sort of just meshes into the rhythm of the film that she doesn't she doesn't change the scope or the feel of it. It doesn't, it doesn't like suddenly the film, it's just like in the witch when weird supernatural things happen, they feel like a piece of this world that they're in. They don't, they don't suddenly shift and you're like, Oh, I was watching a different kind of movie now. Yeah, you know? exactly. And um, I think the other note that I had was just some beautiful cinematography in this film and just some beautiful, like scenics, like settings and vistas and, and things like that, especially near the end, there's a really cool, Uh, moment near the end of the film that I think is just beautiful. Beautiful and like rugged and brutal all at the same time. And I like that. I am a fan actually of swashbuckling sort of these sort of uh, medieval and, and, and and primeval and whatever you want to call it. Like, films that take place in this era. I'm not as big on, I, I haven't watched every single Viking thing that's out there. You know, I watched the Vikings TV show for a little while and everything, but I, I do enjoy these kinds of movies. And I was a fan in the eighties of, of like the, the, uh, uh, Borman's Excalibur and John Millie's Conan, the barbarian. And I think that this movie, uh, takes some of those textures, but then also takes the textures of, 
of of different films uh, and and melds them together and creates something that is very singular. And while I don't think the tone and the rhythms are the same, uh, to me, The Northman feels a lot like what was my number one film last year was The Green Knight. Um, uh, the David Lowry's a green knight that I feel like these movies, all those people will probably have completely different experiences with them. I feel like it hits some of those same uh, elements where it's telling this mythical story in a very uh, nuanced way. It's, it's walking a line between making something for a modern audience and making something that feels kind of ancient and mythic and lived in. And I, and the cinematography in both films is a huge part of that as is a soundtrack. I thought, the score and what was done with that in this film is really, really good. And I like the violent scenes or the, the, the action and the br- brutality it, uh, because they kind of are unflinching. They have this weird animalistic, almost like rage. And there's a deep anger sort of running through uh, some of this. So when these action scenes happen, they're very brutal. They're very quick in some cases, uh, not, not edited quickly, mind you, but it's, it's like a siege, right? It happens. It's abrupt mm-hmm. and it's violent and, the, the characters that, that previously, you know, are talking about all these things they believe and think that doesn't necessarily translate when they're in the middle of a battle and who gets killed is sort of up for grabs in the middle of the mud. And it's who you end up smashing in the head with a hammer or, you know, uh, breaking into their village and killing them all. And it's sort of unflinching in that. Um, I, I, there's a, there, there's a sequence where we're just wa- looking into Skarsgård's eyes while something is happening in the background that reminds me of the old war film come and see. And I was just like, wow, this is intense. <laughs> you know, there's a real sort of not pulling any punches, which I think adds to the texture of the movie because the story is pretty simplistic. As you point out, it is sort of a, uh, you know, revenge, uh, it, it adventure film that had, you know, I, I'm going to revenge my father. I'm going to save my mother. The, the things that the, the little, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. Right. <laughs> He's saying these things. It's like, you know, uh, it's not unlike Conan, you know, and but a, as you see through the film, there's a little bit of more nuance there. One of the big nuances you mentioned is the relationship that develops uh, between uh, Amleth and Anya Taylor Joy's character. And I think now my if I'm uh, as we're going back and forth here, I love, I'll just put up st- straightforward. I love the film. I think I I think it was a great ride, and it's a and it's more than a ride. I think there's a lot of of texture and, and, and beauty, uh, along the rise. One of my favorite movies of the year, but I, the one area that I wanted more from it was, I think they could have built, a uh, Anya Taylor Joy's character a little bit more into the story. I think that what we get is really good, but as you get to the back half of the story, you recognize that this relationship between the two of them, uh, takes on some greater significance. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see a little bit more of that. Like we get his revenge and we see how that gets to be put in place. And it's fascinating to watch. And there's some, there's some very interesting gore in the later half. <laughs> there's some, there's some uh, uh, interesting wall art. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think somebody was trying to make a centaur. I'm not sure what was going on there. Uh, there's some interesting wall art that I thought is like, Hey, I'm less kind of a Renaissance man, but I, their relationship, I could have used just a little bit more of it because it becomes so intriguing i think at some point and you know again it's not that far off from something like the conan valerian except that the acting here 
Uh, and I really, I'm really getting to where I really like Skarsgård. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I'd seen him a year, not years ago. I guess it has been years ago now. In 2016, one of the first movies I reviewed when this podcast had started, it was Pop Culture Ninja, was the Tarzan film that he was in. Oh, okay. You know, And it's not a great, great film, but I liked kind of his depiction of Tarzan and how he approached him. Uh, 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 because you usually see the Tarzan, uh, everyone plays him as the ape guy in the jungle. And he was playing a Tarzan that had had the genteel aspects of what it was to be the Lord of Greystoke and then the kind of guy who was raised by the apes. And you, Northman, he's got a little of that same duality going on, you know, uh, the duality of a, of a guy who uh, is a little bit smarter and a little bit even more compassionate than your typical Viking guy is supposed to be. And yet it's kind of all underneath these layers of rage. He knows what he's got to do. He knows what's probably going to happen when he does it. And he still goes forward with it anyway. And I liked that. And I liked her, the two of them playing off. She tempers that a little bit with him. And in other t- points, she she pushes it, you know. So I like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm trying to think. I know he was in Godzilla versus Kong. I think the first time I might have um, had, I might have watched Skarsgård was in the East. I don't know if you remember that. A little kind of drama thriller from 2012, Oh, yeah, I like that movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, who, who can remember him in Godzilla versus Kong? I really enjoyed <laughs> that movie, but he was complete. He and several other actors were completely wasting it. Well, yeah. The two actors that got their due were Kong and Godzilla. I mean, let's let's be honest. Yeah, and I honestly, again, I'll go back to I think Bill would asked on the top movies. I like the podcaster guy too, the conspiracy dude. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I, I like characters. them all, but they're yeah. they're they're actors in a god. They're characters in a Godzilla movie. Exactly. I they mean, only... if you don't get stepped on, you're doing pretty well. <laughs> no, but I what you said about um, Taylor joy is interesting, especially since the trailers, I feel like there's elements in the trailers. And if you haven't seen the trailer, I'm not, I'm not here to spoil anything, but there's moments in the trailer where you feel like she's going to take on a pretty large role in the overall of this film. And I don't know if we necessarily get what we're kind of promised, but I do love what is there. So I do. And I think, I think to me, the, the difference between this being a really great action adventure film and maybe being like, a masterpiece. I think that the, 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 the gap there is probably down to that, like the heart of the film. And it's, it, I wish that just beat just a little bit stronger. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm with you. So, um, I don't know if there's, I mean, again, I think we want to keep this pretty, uh, spoiler free, but I, you know, we, some of the other characters that we haven't mentioned is, uh, you know, his, uh, Ethan Hawke playing his father, uh, at the opening of the film. And while that's not, you know, it, I, I really enjoyed seeing him in this and I like Ethan, Ethan Hawke's like, you know, one of my uh, favorites. I think it, it, he's an actor that he, uh, what I like about him is he seems to always pick interesting films. Even if the movie he picks isn't great, he's got a, a really interesting and sort of idiosyncratic uh, resume, you know? And, uh, and I got years ago, I got a chance to actually like talk to do an interview with him. And he, uh, you know, he mentioned that after working with Joe Dante, he kind of picked up that like, hey, it's cool to do a lot of different things and to and to try to bring a certain realism to every out there idea that you can. I think he kind of does that with the king here. And I would have almost liked to see more of him uh, in that because I don't know what you felt about it, but he plays a king who's been wounded and uh, Hawk by no means is an actor, I think, that gives you that viking sensibility right when you see him no like he seems like he's more at home in a in a shakespeare sort of thing and the same thing was done in uh uh when sean harris played king arthur right in the green knight like these sort of frail uh 
these these interesting sort of um, character actors playing these sort of frail men of action that are or that are have been sort of sidelined because they've been wounded. And but the way he handles it, this this idea of this man who knows, you know, one hundred percent, I'm going to die in battle. I need to make sure I die in battle. And him trying to uh, impart that on his son in those few small scenes. Same with Willem Dafoe playing the fool mm-hmm. character, yep. like. Those scenes, uh, I think what I like about it is nobody, if you're in this movie for five minutes or you're in this movie for 50 minutes, nobody uh, gets away without making an impression. You know, that's kind of how I feel. And I thought I really liked seeing Hawk uh, in those early scenes. He, he he brought a lot of energy to it. And same thing in Nicole Kimming. I, at first, I thought, OK, her character could be completely sort of <laughs> sidelined. And she gets a pretty good scene later on in the film. Yeah. Too. No, you don't have to sell me on Ethan Hawk. I'm a big Ethan Hawk fan as well. Um, and yeah, I think his character is, while maybe not running, you know, as much as the, I mean, it's right there. We've already said it. I will avenge you father. Right. Um, yeah. But he's a, I think he does a real good job here. And I think his character, the way it's written, isn't just that standard of what you would expect. Yes, he is maybe the standard Viking of, like you said, I don't want to die in battle, yeah. but I don't think he's um, in other aspects is that um, standard stereotypical, you know, Viking king no and that's what sort of but the same could be true of of his his brother who uh is ultimately the man that uh amleth is out to kill right i mean i think it's pretty much up front that you know his brother sort of uh, which is a common thing i think in in medieval terms you know your brother gonna kill you and take your wife is not maybe unheard of you know it might be something happens every other day (laughs) uh but clay's bang i really like his he's fjolner i liked his character too and i and i think that's the things i'm i'm finding myself pointing out in, in this film as weaknesses are really just issues where uh Eggers has taken a basically a stock re- action revenge medieval fantasy story, a medieval story, won't even say fantasy, but he's taken that story. And then what he's done is every stock where a stock character should be and only has this much work to do. He makes a character so interesting that you could watch a whole separate story about them. Yep. Like when Fjolnir, he, he's got these great in, plans for what he's going to do. But then, you know, through a sort of twist of fate, when, when uh, Amleth catches back up with him, he's really not very impressive. No, <laughs> you no. know, he's like a guy that everything kind of everything collapsed for him. His great plans kills his brother, does all this stuff, and is still basically farming land on a volcano. <laughs> yeah, and you get that moment where it's like everything's building up to this, and you don't know how the film's going to turn, and then he gets the news of what happened to his uncle, and it's just like he's kind of gutted for him. He's like, I don't know what. I guess I'm going forward with the plan. I don't know. <laughs> But yeah, that's a, that's a great little twist they had there. Yeah. And so I think all like, again, like Defoe's character, every the, the, like Ethan, you mentioned Ethan Hawke, like to see those scenes that he's in with the son, I could have watched 30, 40, an hour of that, you know, had this movie been three hours, I don't think I would have had a problem with it, but it's, it is, um, it's kind of lean uh, and mean it, 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 to, to a point, you know, it definitely has some slower moments and things like that, but that's all the texture that's taking in this world that exists. But I think if you enjoy this kind of movie, uh, this isn't going, this is not a, uh, in, in some ways it's not a popcorn munching movie. In other ways, I think it is, it's just a, it's a little bit smarter and a little bit more, uh, atmospheric than you're used to. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. And if I don't know if you had anything else on this, Nathan, but I just want to. Oh, go ahead. 
No, I don't. No, nope, okay. I'm good. I was just going to urge you, and if and it seems like a lot of people that we we usually interact with have seen this already. But if it's still playing out there, because uh, this one's kind of kind of almost dead on the vine at this point, it's not going to make its money back as least in the theaters. But if you get a chance to go out and support this one, I definitely would. I think this will be one though that has a has a pretty healthy life, like some of Edgar's other films, yeah. uh, on on streaming and I think where people can catch it. And it, but I agree with what you said. If you can get out there and see it, you should, because there's a, uh, if nothing else, you know, as climactic battles on a volcano go, <laughs> <laughs> that's, this is pretty impressive. I give this one a nine. What do you, uh, how do you rate it? Yeah, I'm on nine as well. And I'll, I'll tell you, I hope, I hope it does find its home, whether that's on VOD or whatever, because I think, um, Edgar's gets a bigger budget here. And I think a lot of the time when this happens to these smaller indie directors, they could collapse and kind of fall apart. But I think he uses the budget to great effect here. And I think he did a good job with his kind of middle of the road. I think it was like 75 mil or so. But yeah, this is a nine for me. And I say definitely watch it. Yeah, I think we'll be I think we'll be seeing this one again when we get to the end of the year or end of the year list for me anyway. Yeah. Uh, and I, I am loving this resurgence of these kind of uh, smarter, more esoteric, uh, like medieval fantasy style films. Yep. And if you if you love The Green Knight, this is a little different than that if you hated The Green Knight, you'll probably still like this one. Yeah, so, yeah absolutely. <laughs> OK, so uh, we 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 use most of our time up on the North, but I'm OK <laughs> with that. Um, the next movie that I want to talk about is one that I know you got a chance to go out and, or I don't know if you want to see it, but it's in streaming. It's at theaters and streaming right now. I saw, and if it's probably playing in one theater, maybe half a theater now that (laughs) Dr. Strange is out. But I, uh, saw this, actually this film at the Sundance film festival back in January, I believe. And it's, uh, it's called hatching. It's a 2022 film. It's directed by Hannah Bergholm and it's a very interesting movie i i think uh it's horror it's without a doubt horror mm-hmm. but it is definitely art house horror first off i do want to mention it's a film from um finland it's a swedish film and it has uh so if you're seeing it uh your subtitles the whole deal uh and the tone of the film is going to be a little different the pacing a little different maybe than what you would expect from an american horror film but let me give you the the basic uh premise and this is coming from imdb a young gymnast who tries desperately to please her demanding mother discovers a strange egg she hides it and keeps it warm but when it hatches what emerges shocks them all as IMDb goes, that's not bad. No, no. <laughs> I think that that actually that enough. actually sets up the ba- yeah the big enough sets up the basic elements of the film. And one of the reasons I think that that description does the the move the movie or at least the basic start of the plot justice is that this film plays very very much purposely so like a fairy tale, like a fable. Uh, it takes place in our modern world. Uh, you know, I, I think that the the mother character here, who, by the way, is a I think right off the bat, it's easy to see she is quite a piece of work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so Sophia Hekela, who plays her, uh, she's one of the best uh, best uh performances in the film i think uh because she she sort of fancies herself what an influencer mm-hmm. you know she's very much about uh 
presenting this pristine image of herself as this modern homemaking woman who has her whole family in order and everything's in order and the father sort of falls in line and she's got the son and the daughter who's a gymnast but underneath that facade everything's sort of rotten and strained right particularly through the perspective of of the young girl who just wants everything she could do to please her mother but you know uh and and Tina, her she she wants her mother's love, but her mother pretty much sees her as a prop. You know that 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 at least in far as the engagement and interaction between the two of them goes, uh, if, if she cares for her family at all, we don't see it expressed as anything more than sort of a finely tuned performance. And meanwhile, she is cheating on her husband, and she's doing so sort of blatantly in front of her daughter, who is confused by all this and doesn't know how to deal with this. And there's moments of just sort of flippant cruelty, would that be, would that be fair to say? Yeah. <laughs> That's right? yeah. usually conveyed through words and through cutting actions and neglect, not so much, you know, we're, we're not seeing her smack the the kid in the face, but she has just created this wall between herself and this young girl who's at a moment in her life when she needs her mother. And she just, she's not, there's no, there's no warm maternal center here. It's just empty ice cavern essentially. <laughs> and the movie it does have an sort of, uh, an arc feel to it, meaning that, you know, these characters are supposed to feel a little bigger than life, that this does kind of look almost like that wicked stepmother, except guess what? She's a real mother. And, then you enter, and there's this moment early on when a bird flies into the house, and we see the mother really display overt cruelty when she kills it, right, or or smashes it up, yeah, and uh, its broken body is then sort of discarded, and when the, the young girl sort of follows that up after that cruelty to find out what happened to this, and she comes across this egg, which is, would you know, the assumption being that the egg is from this this bird. Uh, she brings it back into her home to care for it. And it's this seed that has sort of sprung from her mother's cruelty. And she has sort of, you know, uh, absconded with it, taken it away. It's sort of her rebellion. She's keeping it uh, under this pillow in her room. And then it's just getting bigger and bigger. And soon we're talking about an egg that looks like it's going to hatch like, you know, something, something <laughs> formidable, right? Like a baby. Yeah. Pterodactyl, <laughs> a baby Rodan. We don't know what's going to come out of this egg. Uh, or maybe a baby Mothra, you know, you're not sure. We just know that it's, uh, we're now talking about a different kind of thing. <laughs> this isn't going to be ET exactly. And yet, uh, when the Hague hatches, the thing that comes out of it, um, has, has an evolution of sorts. I think that's probably fair to say without any real spoilers. And the early going, it has some very weird, like Jim Henson creature shop vibes to it. Like yes. uh, it creates a very weird dissonance immediately where I'm like, this is strange. Feels like an effed up kids movie, but it's not a kids movie. Um, there's a lot of vomiting in this film too. Uh, and then we see this creature that has various stages to it uh, become a reflection really, I think of Tina's sort of, her internal uh, struggles that are going on, oh, partially with growing up, partially with how to interact and, and navigate the world and her own uh, blossoming sense of self that, you know, things changes are happening to her physically and emotionally and with no mother there to really, she keeps looking to her, but she's not providing any sort of warmth. This creature takes on varying sort of facets of her personality. And there is that kind of the underlying horror element of it is eventually this thing starts to sort of wreak havoc on the people that wrong her 
that she doesn't always have control over that. So that's a pretty standard conceit I think we see in a film where she finds she is deeply connected to this creature. Uh, we've seen that sort of relationship in movies, you know, over and over again. Uh, E.T. had some of that yeah. where the the the, the, the 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 and there's a little bit of E.T. in this film. As messed up as that sounds, there is. Uh, and you have connections, connective tissue there. Of course, there was a connective relationship in the movie Pumpkinhead, and there's a lot of that film in this in this one too. Uh, but I really liked this movie. I think that it doesn't maybe go as far as it could have because we are. Uh, there are moments when I want to see this movie sort of movie may move out of its fable sort of structure, but it has set up a very clear path for itself. It walks that path, and I think the performances are really good. The young girl, Sierra Solana as Trina, re, or excuse me, as Tina was really good. I think she captures and, and she has a little bit of a dual role later on, right? Uh, she captures what's going on with this young girl kind of perfectly makes it very realistic, which grounds the fantasy stuff. The, the mother is, she's a, she's a very overpowering character, but she works here and I love the creature. So the, it's a, it's a good it's a it's a good film. It's a big recommendation for me. I'm giving it about a 7.5. Yeah, um so I would say there's not like you were saying there's not really I think there's two characters that I like in this movie and that's Tinia and another one um later Owen. Um everyone else in this family is just despicable and terrible. Yeah, I, I like them as characters, yes. but I don't necessarily want to spend any time with them in real life. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And um, I think we, yeah, right from that beginning when the mother kills that bird, you get a sense of like, there's weird stuff going on here, but nobody really acknowledges it and acknowledge what's going on. But um, yeah, I love the creepy vibes of this. I love the creature, like you said, uh, kind of a Jim Henson, um, oh, what do I think, a dark crystal kind of <laughs> Kind of, yeah, so the, there's a little bit of the Skeksis yeah, going on there. Yeah, yeah and um, I think this deals with a lot of themes of, you know, the standard coming of age puberty type stuff. But I think also of like what you were saying earlier as your parents living their life through their kids and also the kids fear of becoming their parents when it's not, you know. Um, yeah. So I really like this one as well. I think you teed it up perfectly. I would come in around an eight on this. I really liked it. And I think it's probably going to be hanging around my top list when I'm talking horror specific movies. Yeah, I, I, I think so too. And I think this is one that's going to hit, this one's going to catch on with streaming. I think mm -hmm. uh, and when it, when it finally hits like a Hulu or a Netflix or something like that yeah. or prime. And I think that people are going to discover it and it, it is um, it's good. It's a good film. And I think that I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing, uh, more films from Hamburg home. I think she, she, she really kind of nails this. And I love the look of the movie too, because um, so much of this movie is like caught in, in this is not a movie that a lot, there are scenes that take place at night. And then we have a few of the scary, like, Oh, something out on a dark road moments. But a lot of this is caught in a world full of pastel colors and pristine rooms. And there's horrible things happening a bloody goopy vomity things happening yep. in the midst of all of yep. this. So, yep. But yeah, hatching's great. Um, go out and check that one and, out and you can catch it. You can rent it right now on streaming. Yes. And I'd say it's, it's, it's definitely worth the rental price. Yeah. Um, I watched it on voodoo, I think. So when it came out, so it is available streaming. If you can't make it out to the theaters, if it's still even playing anywhere. Right. Yeah. Like it, I think this is one of those movies that give the, like the, uh, anything outside of an art theater, it's probably getting like a, like a, a, a free week Yeah, <laughs> yeah. here. You get your obligatory week. And <laughs> so, um, 
before we get to multiverse of madness another small film that came out right yeah. <laughs> um i do want to turn it over to you trey for a few minutes for a movie you wanted to uh talk about that i actually haven't seen yet yeah and that's a very rare occasion um but, <laughs> right <laughs> but i will say um you know sometimes we're back and forth where you see one a day before me or i see one a day before you but this one i just checked out the other day and it's streaming on netflix and it's called thar t-h-a-r um and it's named after the desert region it's yeah um that they're filmed i was relieved in. yeah <laughs> i was relieved to find that it wasn't like uh asylum's latest attempt to cash in on thor before you know it released <laughs> and it was pretty good but um uh yeah it's a weird name but it is a hindi film um and is directed by raj singh shadare and the synopsis reads a veteran cop sees the chance to prove himself when murder and strangers grisly torture plot shake the walls of a sleepy desert town. So I really like this one. This is a much more of like, um, if I'm putting all these fancy categories in it, it's kind of like a neo Western type thing. Um, it's a thriller crime film, that kind of thing. And it's honestly, it's set in the eighties and it's got this kind of stylized feel to it, which is really cool because you're setting against this desert, but it still has this sense of, uh, this just, unique sense and the cop in this yeah he's kind of not done anything his whole life you know when he's talking to his wife he's he's close to retirement and his wife's just saying you know yeah just ask your questions and get on with it don't pull out your gun don't do anything like that because crime's getting really bad in this region and we follow from a couple of different perspectives there's the police officer and then there's the um Oh, there's a stranger that kind of comes into this town and we're following these couple different storylines and seeing how they work out. But there's film opens. Basically, there's been a murder and there's having problems with, you know, the drug trade and things coming over from the Pakistani border. And it's really just this kind of cat and mouse, almost inspired kind of noir type film. Um, I think there are really good performances in this from the cast. And like I said, I really like the style. Nathan, I I think you would enjoy this one. I think it's got enough of the Nathan Bartlebaugh touch points for it to be <laughs> um, for you to enjoy it. Uh, I would I would compare it to it's different, honestly, in tone, but it's the same similar type of vibe as something like Catch the Fair One. It's pretty brutal in places um, when we get into some of these torture scenes and all that. But yeah, I would. Yeah, I was going to ask about the torture scenes there. Yeah, yeah. it's nothing. um it's nothing like <laughs> over the top. It's not going to be like a hostel or anything like that. Well, let me ask. There's a film that came out a few years back. I think it was a Turkish film actually called Big Bad Wolves. Did you see that one? I didn't. No, I've, I know of the film okay. you're talking about. But... The way you're talking about this one, not necessarily in the essence of the plot, but in the way that or or even a movie like uh, um, the, the Korean film Memories of Murder. Like it sounds like it might be around that that type of film where it has these kind of darker elements, but they all sort of mesh together. It's not, it's not a film that's focused on torture or something like that. No, I think it does kind of delve into some horrific moments with the torture, but the torture is not the necessarily the driving plot. Um, or like an I saw the devil kind of film. Yeah. You know, something yeah, yeah. Like that. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely along those lines. It is like a dark thriller um, first and foremost. So, yeah, I just really like the style of this one. I really like the characters. There's just kind of buddy cop thing that goes on, and that's awesome as well. And um, yeah, it's just something different that we necessarily don't get to see from American films, as you were mentioning, you know, other international films. 
and it kind of has that vibe to it. So um, at the end of the day, I'm going to give this one around a 7.5, I think. And I'm going to say it's definitely worth a stream on Netflix. Uh, is it on Netflix right now? Yeah, yep. Oh, very cool. I will definitely check it out. Um, I want to get a chance to see it. The interesting thing, I think, and there are a lot of really good um, Hindi films out there. In fact, what I need to do an episode at some point where we kind of focus on those. There, there's good films and bad films. And I think the film industry over there is so huge that there's movies made all the time. And the interesting thing about Hindi films is you'll get movies that are singular, but you will also get, uh, and I don't think this is necessarily uh, as true of other, you know, um, other films internationally where they always have the certain feel. Hindi films will completely remake an American movie. Yeah. <laughs> but in their style and in their sort of, uh, you know, it'll be almost exactly the same movie, but then it will have their sensibilities kind of grafted onto it. And sometimes that means there's three or four musical numbers in a remake of Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> I did. I literally have seen that film. Uh, but. This sounds like it's maybe a little bit more its own thing, but it takes those elements we might be familiar with in an American thriller and maybe tweaks them a little bit. But I do have to ask, are there any musical numbers occurring? No, I was just going to say there's no musical numbers. There's no smoking warnings. There's no um, (laughs) none of that stuff. Um, But it's not anything original. But it definitely it definitely has its own feel. It's but it's nothing new. Um, It's not riffing off of anything like straight up remake like you were yeah, saying but it's it's nothing new or original but it's just a cool solid film i would say cool well, i'm looking forward to checking it out and i'm i don't think i realized it was on netflix so i will definitely be seeing it sooner than later and when i do i will report back yeah absolutely i'd love to hear what you thought of it and you said 7.5 yeah i think that's where i'm landing cool. 7 cool. 7.5 i'll go 7.5 yeah <laughs> uh cool well i will definitely check out that's thar t-h-a-r yep or is there an extra r in okay nope, just one and I, that and always like gets a desert, me too yeah that's Indian. a desert region where the movie takes place yes. right yep. okay so let's uh finish this up then with uh, a, a quick look and you know going back and forth on this i think due to time i think what we will do is sort of keep this mostly at a so this will be a spoiler free review of multiverse of madness then we will just stop and have a couple minutes i think where we talk about anything that we'd like to talk about uh with the spoiler spoiler uh walls lifted if you will and uh yeah what can, you know i can almost not even really summarize this film without spoiling some sort of marvel thing because that's where we are now and you know marvel films have reached this point uh whether you like it or not where you know a lot of the same criticisms that some people lob at them are some of the things that other people love about them, which is we've reached a point where the MCU is really making these multi million dollar films that take three or four years to make. And yet they really come out like comic book issues. You know, they've so synthesized the comic book style that one of the problems I think we find is that you're spending a lot of money to make what back in the day would have been what maybe a, 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 a two, three month run of, of three or four ep, uh, uh, 30 page issues strung together what what a what a comic company would sort of like throw out there you know uh with a with with a couple writers and artists over a couple of months is the the quality level of that storyline is now something that takes a, an army to make and years to to create and then billions of dollars to promote and so i think you it's some level when they've they've real now that they're really getting their hitting their stride i think in terms of replicating what it's like to make a comic book on the big screen, uh, the the results aren't necessarily going to always please someone who's going showing up to watch a nice 
contained film. I just don't know if that's something we could even expect from the Marvel Universe when we're talking about these bigger name uh, properties. You know, when we're talking a Doctor Strange or a Thor or an Avengers, we're not going to get a standalone film anymore. It just simply isn't going to happen. And depending on your mileage and depending on your uh, your feeling when it comes to comic books and comic book films, that may not even be what you're looking for anymore here. And I think it would be safe to say that Doctor Strange and Multiverse of Madness, which isn't even so much a sequel to the Doctor Strange film, except on the fact that it features characters that were in that film. So much has happened with Doctor Strange. He's appeared in so many different films since that uh, movie that this is a sequel to all Marvel films, right? Really, in a sense. You know, this is a sequel to the 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 Infinity War films. It's a sequel to Spider-Man No Way Home more than it is a sequel to Doctor Strange. And it's also a, a uh, because... Uh, Elizabeth Olsen's Scarlet Witch, uh, Wanda Maximoff, plays into this story. It's also very much, very heavily, I'd say maybe more than anything else, a sequel to WandaVision, the limited-run uh, series that was on Disney+. And because of that, it's almost impossible for me to talk about lots of aspects of this plot, except to say that it does involve the concept of the multiverse that was broached in uh, on on television more so than anywhere else. Uh, I say television, what I mean is on Disney+, Plus, uh, where it was brought into uh, Loki, I think most prominently, the concept of the multiverse. And we've seen it also in Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, the multiverse played a pretty big role. And where the film goes we do have uh multiple doctor stranges in this film the, the the doctor strange prime that benedict cumberbatch has been playing so far is center of this and he he gets involved in a uh in a situation where a character kind of shows up from the multiverse being pursued by all kinds of different creatures uh that want to uh that want to destroy her for a reason that he is not initially uh you know, certain of. And again, I, it sounds like I'm talking about a movie where we, people do a thing and there's a thing and there's another thing. And that's not really uh, uh, completely incorrect here, but you do have the main players. You have Benedict Cumberbatch back as Dr. Strange. You have one of my favorites, Benedict Wong as <laughs> Wong. Uh, Wong in the comics was always just an accessory. And here he is the Sorcerer Supreme now, right? I love that little wrinkle where what, what does strange say in the spider-man movies he got it in a technicality because he blipped for five years yeah. <laughs> and so they're very much in this film and so he encounters this character played by so gomez who shows up in the middle of this monster attack on the city which by the way uh if i didn't mention this up front this film is directed by sam raimi and fans of sam raimi and fans of the evil dead and of the uh dark man and all the sort of wacky films that sam raimi has made uh will appreciate his contributions to this film. This very much feels like a Sam Raimi movie. This is not a Oz the Great and Powerful kind of deal or a For Love of the Game where it feels like Raimi's just sort of being brought in as a as a hired hand to do this. This has a lot of the same energy and a lot of the same kind of pulpy uh, kind of uh, homages that you would expect from Raimi. The style is all there that he had when he brought to the, the, the first couple Spider-Man movies he did. Uh, but you have this giant monster attack and then Socio Gomez shows up as America Chavez who has jumped multiverses seemingly through her own will uh, and without the help of any sort of magical items. It, it appears that way anyway. And we've already witnessed her and another Doctor Strange battle uh, a sort of dark force that is chasing her and they are looking for a magical item 
that will be able to turn the tide of this encroaching force of darkness that is stalking its way across the multiverse. Uh, yes, sounds like another movie I saw recently, <laughs> but uh, but that film, the Everything Everywhere All at Once, is, which I've already you know spoken at length about, and I really recommend. Uh, that movie gets a lot wilder, displaced by the rules of 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 Marvel, but you basically end up with Doctor Strange and uh, America Chavez jumping through in uh, various multiverses, and we even have a scene that's sort of a, a a montage as we watch them jump through various worlds. And there are some worlds that are depicted in that jump that I was instantly intrigued by, and then they vanished and evaporated from my <laughs> from my my hopes and dreams to see them depicted any any more than sort of a one off in this film. And so the worlds that we do get are are cool in some ways, but they're kind of standard. I mean, we do get a universe where pizza balls exist and there is one of my probably favorite side characters, the pizza Papa, which I won't say anything more <laughs> about, but Raimi fans will be happy. If you haven't already seen the movie, you'll uh, you will. Uh, but a lot of this does end up as a setup to sort of seemingly just introduce more Marvel characters that will one day be relevant somewhere else or as callbacks to characters we already know from other franchises and Marvel's going to do that. I think that it's done relatively well here. I was actually surprised by a couple of the faces that show up and I did enjoy the overall energy that Raimi brings to the film because he does introduce a lot of horror elements here, uh, some really cool snazzy horror melts and he gets his own personality into the film. So uh, if you think this movie isn't going to have some sequences that feel like the evil dead or drag me to hell. And in fact, there is a little bit of vomiting. Uh, you will be wrong. <laughs> so I really enjoyed that. And I, I'm not a big fan of 3d either. I mentioned at the beginning, I saw this in 3d. We did only because it was the only showtime that worked at the theater we wanted to go to. And I was actually kind of happy that I did because uh, it was immersive. And because of Raimi's sort of weird camera angles and the way he tends to, uh, shoot and film action. It really worked well because it was like that old style carnival ride that uh, is almost taking the old school 3D and then just zipping it up, you know, and, and, and adding a little bit of um, hyperactivity to it. And I really, really like that. And this whole movie is hyperactive. It's a candy coated nightmare in a way. And and the, the storyline, I don't think, is all that great because it's sort of just pieced together it's trying to get us from one place to the other it is now at the same time there are nuances to it that i think work and i haven't really mentioned what i think one of the strengths of the film i like cumberbatch a lot but his doctor strange is a little bit along for the ride the story remembers enough about him that okay we're gonna we're gonna tweak his arc a little bit it is he's going to be front and central he's the main hero but the movie's big star here, I think, is is Wanda Maximoff. Is is Elizabeth Olsen giving? Um, she's she's continually gotten better and better and better as this character. I wasn't that sold on her. I didn't like Avengers: The Rise of Ultron. I wasn't a big fan of that film, and it it, it her character didn't uh, resonate a lot with me in that film. But from Civil War on, and in the, particularly in WandaVision, I think they really bring her character to the fore. And here, I don't want to get into all the things that she gets to do, but where they handle, they take the character, surprise me a little. I wasn't quite expecting it. And when they do it, uh, the, the combination of her pathos and Raimi's wild visual sense and his uh, sensibilities 
they do a really good job taking the character in a direction that I personally on paper, I'm not that happy with, uh, but they make it so compelling that I have to admit, she's one of the best things about the movie. And I, I really liked um, uh, Gomez as, as America Chavez. My kids recognized her from the babysitters club TV series. She has the right kind of plucky energy for this. Uh, you're going to enjoy some of those cameos. Uh, we could talk a little bit more about that. Maybe. Um, overall, I was quite pleased with the movie. I think it it is jumping off of where Spider-Man No Way Home came from, where it's now a movie really meant for fans of comic books. I used to read comic books that were just like this. There are images in this film that are they're perfectly uh, encapsulated comic book scenarios. This isn't graphic novel. This is comic book. This is fun, pulpy comic fun, and Raimi directs the heck out of it. This is some of his most, I think, um, inventive filmmaking i've seen him do in years probably since drag me to hell yeah and i gotta tell you nathan i'm still reeling from that uh for the love of the game reference there um <laughs> that was his movie right yeah, yeah, yeah. no 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 you're right but yeah, yeah. you mentioned the love of the game and uh oz the great and powerful and you just skip over the quick and the dead i'm a little taken aback now <laughs> no, I'm now see the problem is i view quick and the dead when it was done in 1995 that was still ramey with something to prove people you know he wasn't like a, I like a, the quick and the dead may not be a great movie but i still think there's a lot of him in that film yeah no. i think there's a lot less of him visible in those other two movies no i'm i'm with you 100 but um no i'll all joking aside um i think you said a couple of good points there and the thing is is yes this is fun pulpy comic book stuff and i'm all for it and i will be now i'm a little bit more energized um since spider-man nathan on these types of films because i gotta tell you 2021 was not the greatest year (laughs) for marvel and things that would get me excited um I did end up liking Shang-Chi, but the other two were kind of throwaway until we got to Spider-Man. But when, yes, we've seen Strange all over the place, and I think that's important when you have this many characters that the MCU is trying to juggle. We haven't seen Doctor Strange. You know, if we're going to have six years between films, it's important that he's going to show up other places. And I'm really glad that you told me to watch WandaVision before we got into this movie. Um, Me too. I had no idea that was going to be the more prominent uh, reference between that and Spider-Man. <laughs> yes. And but like you said, hitting on that point, it does kind of betray um, a little bit what had happened in WandaVision. So I don't know if that's spoiler or not there, but um, I, I think I'm with you on that point. Now, <laughs> Olsen as Maximoff, she's come a long way since, you know, 2014's Godzilla. I think she is incredible as a character and is becoming quickly one of my favorite characters in the entire MCU. I mean, that's that's just how I view her. And I hope we get more Wanda Maximoff. But there's just some there's Raimi all over this thing, man. I I don't think you can go and see this. If you've seen a single Raimi film, you're going to see it. And I didn't know necessarily what that meant when people were saying that when early reviews were coming out, Nathan. And then I saw this movie and I was like, yeah, you definitely see it all over the place. But um, oh, yeah, even my my young my kids, uh, my eight year old is screaming out like, Dad, look, this is like, you know, she's like, I like the way Raimi does zombies and they're not really zombies They're in you know, She's giving me like this history lesson in the middle of the theater but it it was enough there that she could see it and appreciate it and enjoy it and you know um and i think everyone who who sees will but it's not just the references right it's the whole feel yeah um yeah 
that opening scene where he with those monsters probably not a surprise the monster attacks the city right and this thing shows up and of course we're at the level where the cgi is just amazing right like on this oh, yeah. on these things now but the monster itself and I, I don't think this is a spoiler at all the monster looks like something from a 50s roger corman movie like oh yeah not in execution but he's a giant big eyeball with ten i mean he's a he looks like something from the cover of like wild wonder stories or something, or, you know, uh, a weird science. And that's kind of Raimi. Like that's his, his, his thing, you know, it's just like a Joe Dante and like seeing that thing come out made with the millions and millions of dollars of Marvel technology. I think that's the thing we're watching Raimi sort of satisfy his own weird, uh, eccentricities and his quirks on this giant giant budget and that's what i like about marvel yeah you're going in is the story completely that was the same reason comic books right like when i read a comic book and my favorite artist or my favorite author would do something it wasn't necessarily it was i wanted to see like that the the overall plot structure mattered as much to me i wanted to see what they were going to do with it i wanted to see their little touchstones and that's what you get that's what this film is it is that comic book with the brings in the special guest artist or the special guest director and you you're you're enjoying their style and their voice as much as you are the story yeah absolutely and i think i don't think this is going too far to say this but there's this gets there to like a little bit of the horror element sometimes. And it's not necessarily like, I don't know. It's, it's not playing itself as a horror film, but I think you see it and you're just like, Oh, that's kind of kind of teetering on the line there. I don't think this is a horror movie. I think there are horror elements in it, but that's what I love. It gets close. It gets close. This is almost a gateway horror film. Hey, are you very quickly? Are you ready to drop the spoiler barrier? We'll give our, our ratings real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think we can't. It's hard to talk about some of that horror stuff without talking about some of the weirder things yeah, go ahead. that happen in the film. For me, it's an eight, and the, the reason it's an eight is because of Raimi. Uh, without Raimi, it's probably a seven. I still enjoy what's happening here, and I love the cameos. But his energy is perfectly suited for comic books. I think he's one of the few directors that really gets how to integrate this and put it on the big screen in a way that isn't confusing, that isn't tedious and keeps you constantly sort of energized. And that's not easy to do. I mean, Hey, ask some of the comic book movies that came out over the past couple of years. That's not easy to do. No. Um, So I'm going to come in. I'm always, I think we talked about this. I'm always a little bit lenient on these MCU films and I get it. They're not people. There's fatigue at this point, of course. But I I think people are having a hard time remembering. I grew up with it where we were getting, you know, I've seen the Electras and the Rise of the Silver Surfers and all of that. And as someone who has just loved superheroes and comic book type stuff his whole life, we're just in a golden age where we get a little bit of everything. We can get a little bit of horror in this one. We can get a little bit of a spy thriller and like Winter Soldier. <laughs> we can get... It's all over the place, and I think they're not always successful, and it does get a little tedious, but I'm still on that high, man, of we're just still getting these solid um, superhero films. And, you know, we get youth pastor Tobey Maguire. We get, we get, (laughs) you know, it's funny. (laughs) It's funny you say that, like, oh, I grew up at a time when we were getting the electors and things like that. Hey, if you're, if you're a little bit older, like me, you grew up at a time when, when you were prominently reading comic books, you were getting 
what I was getting, I was envisioning these sorts of things, and I was getting the Dolph Lundgren Punisher, <laughs> the seventies Doctor Strange. I had Doctor Modred. Okay, I had the Full Moon and uh, the the Roger Corman. Well, we had the nineties when I was reading comics. It was the Punisher, the Roger Corman Fantastic Four that never actually got released. Mm-hmm. There was the really bad Captain America movie yeah, that yeah. came out. Uh, those sorts of things. So anyone who who uh, you know who isn't really into comics. Uh, you know, let's not let's not crap on this too much. I understand that it's a bit of a juggernaut, but hey, th- this is the closest that in a comic fans have ever gotten to to uh, worlds and stories that look like what they're they're used to reading. I think. Yep. And I sorry I did not give my rating, but I'd come in. I I think I'm going to go ahead and go with a nine on this, Nathan. I've been teetering back and forth between an eight point five and a nine because it is lower than the Northman for myself, but I, I'm going to just go give it a nine. <laughs> <laughs> just go for it yeah. man hey life's too short yeah. um and it is a lot of fun hey and you know i, I was kind of surprised my kids we rewatched spider-man no way home uh this weekend and uh after you know on on mother's day with the family and they like multiverse of badness better and i think it's a lot down to that horror stuff so here's where the spoiler barrier comes down we're gonna talk cameos we're talk all that not too much we're not gonna just mention things to mention them but i do think it's important to talk about uh, some of those horror elements and how this does get very Raimi like. And I think a big part of that is the fact that the Scarlet Witch just goes basically bat crap crazy, right? Yeah. Like uh, becomes a full blown villain. I wasn't really a, uh, uh, I enjoy Olsen's portrayal of this, but this is the prime Scarlet Witch we're talking about. And uh, the fact that she's doing all of this out of this just pure uh, agony she has over these children that were not even real. Uh, I felt that the WandaVision had provided a certain catharsis for that, that the whole process of what was happening uh, was intended to, to sort of walk Wanda through that process. And here we see her broken by it and uh, a full villain, a villain who's murdering people, murdering more people than Loki may have killed. You know, I mean, it's uh, she's, she's unrepentantly, the villain for the majority of this film and a scary villain that will snap your neck and kill you uh, and chase you like the witches from the evil dead or, or, or drag me to hell, you know? And I love all of that, but I kind of wish that we were getting a Wanda Maximoff from, from another multiverse and not the Wanda Maximoff that we followed so long. Now, that being said, I think that adds a certain amount of, pathos to it a certain amount of um disconnect that makes it interesting but i just not sure i don't know where we're going from here because it's all you know it seems like this is the end of the road for maximoff prime and i it sounds like i'm talking about transformers now <laughs> but the uh i i just think that i that seems like a big misstep maybe i will be proved wrong down the road but i just really felt that that bit was a betrayal of writing and and, and character development. Uh, but it's really my only really big complaint. That's the reason it's lower. Uh, and the reason it's higher is because of Raimi and the way he handles the horror stuff and the, the genius of having the sort of uh, zombie Dr. Strange and how that plays in the story is cool. Um, how about you, Trey, anything you want to talk about spoiler wise? That was probably my big one. And then I do want to talk about the, the stuff involving the Illuminati. Yeah, and I'll I just I'll do a couple of things quick because I want to talk about that as well. Um, but yes, it's just that that shift because when we first get Maximoff in this film, um, when Doctor Strange first goes talk to her, it's a really cool moment and it just stresses how much I love that character. And then we get a turn, 
And I'm not necessarily, I don't know how I felt when that turn happened. And that's just in that first scene I'm talking about, Nathan. Um, it's visually stunning when we get that turn. I love the look of that, um, what we get there. But I, I was very conflicted when we first see that because I am I love this character as she's kind of portrayed and she went through her arc. And we weren't necessarily led to believe that this was the path she was going to go down. She was going to go full Scarlet Witch after WandaVision. Um, so I'm right there with you, but the horror elements are definitely there. You were talking about that monster earlier that get its, gets its eyeball plucked out. Um, uh, yeah, I didn't mention the eyeball getting <laughs> literally plucked out and dropped through the city, but that was cool. Yeah. And then when you talked about the Illuminati and I won't get into details, but there's some brutal things and I'm, we're talking like if there's some, uh, there are a couple cuts taken out and we're seeing these things head on. It reminds me of like a mortal combat. It's kind of that cartoony violence yeah, but it's, it's a massacre yeah, but it's, it's still brutal massacre. it's cartoonish but it's brutal um, and what i don't get is how that character can commit those acts being the person that we know them to be you know that's absolutely and, and, and they're not completely possessed right like that's kind of where my think is but i hey, i'm okay actually spoiling some of that stuff because um as much as i was honestly i did not i walked into the movie not n- like uh, first off completely surprised by the fact that wanda um, Maximoff, uh, is kind of the full blown villain of the piece. I expected we would see some of that Scarlet Witch storyline. That is a classic storyline. Mm-hmm. You do have elements and, 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 and flourishes, I think of the dark Phoenix, right. Yeah. In that story. Yeah. And uh, that would probably be the touch point. And of course they, they, they managed to get some references in there as well. But, I think that I did not see that coming. And then suddenly I was like, oh, this is very different than where I was expecting pretty early on. And we realized she is sort of going to be the full blown villain of the piece. Uh, but then I, I was not aware at all. I was completely surprised when uh, I heard Patrick Stewart's voice in the trailer, but strangely enough, I'm like, I wonder who Patrick Stewart is playing. It just never <laughs> dawned on me that it would a be um uh, Professor X, and it should have immediately, or that B, we would have him come into the uh, like uh, the stinger from the X Men animated series, which I recognized instantly, but didn't know from where. I was like, I don't think that's the score. That's not the, the that's not the films. That's not the films theme. But I know this, and then you cleared it up for me by pointing out it was the the animated music. But I did not see. Uh, Reed, I know that was sort of a fan thing for a few years that people wanted to see John Krasinski play Reed Richards, but it was a whole nother thing to see him actually be in the film as Reed Richards and and do his Mr. Fantastic shtick. And man, if anyone can make the Fantastic Four movie that's actually good for a change, I think it could be John Krasinski, and I hope that that's where they're going with it. So do, so we, was, do we get Emily Blunt as the invisible? I hope we do, man. <laughs> You can get Rain Wilson as Doctor Doom. That's what my kids want to see. <laughs> but uh, but no, but seriously, or he could even be Ben Grimm, right? Like, but um, if Jamie Bell can play him, then then Rain Wilson can play yeah. Ben Grimm. Uh, but you know, I think that those cameos. Oh, and, and and it was an interesting way to work in Chiwetelja for as uh, as as Mordo. And I think what's neat about that is Mordo is set up as the as as Strange's prime villain at the end of Doctor Strange, mm-hmm. right? And what is cool about that is because Strange has been so prominently featured in all these other movies, but not one of his own, 
we're just left to assume that Mordo becomes his main adversary. Right. We never see him, even in this film, as Strange's main adversary. Even the way he's encountered in this film, he's still a somewhat reasonable dude, right? Yes. Like, and in fact, he has a line at one point, I think I know why your version hates you so much. <laughs> you <know? laughs> that he's he's still, he's he's pitted against him. He has all the same sort of jealousies and and issues that that Mordo had. But we don't know. We've, we still have not seen that Mordo as a villain. I think that's kind of cool. I think that was sort of a nuance that I appreciated. And that that Mordo isn't a huge, huge part of this movie. You know, he, he's in he's in this universe scene. But that murder scene where they basic and I liked seeing the uh, is it the um, the Black Bolt? Black Bolt. Yeah. You know, they, his death was pretty rough. I don't know anything's worse than like her shredding uh, Mr. Fantastic like he's a pull and peel Twizzler. But uh <laughs> yeah. The um that whole scene was but it that that had a lot of energy to it. I really appreciated that. And of course um yeah, the way it was done and just uh, but giving um giving Patrick Stewart a few extra moments to sort of shine. I thought that was cool. So, yeah. And I hope we haven't seen the end of some of those characters in other multiverses, because I tell you what, Black Bolt has gotten the shaft kind of when we're talking about it, because he was in that awful inhuman show and he's a pretty prominent, uh, ominous character. Yeah. I didn't watch it either, but I know I've heard nothing but bad things. I mean, they didn't even air the whole series because it was bad, but um, yeah, he's pretty like a, very prestigious character in the comics and very ominous character. So um, I think they did really well with the Illuminati stuff. And like you've talked about several times about your love for Batman, the animated series, and that was X-Men, the animated series for me. I still love Batman, the animated series, but when I hear same year, they were came out the same year. Yeah, I think that was a Saturday morning cartoon, right? Yep. And then that Spider-Man was the animated series was about the same time and they were all kind of interconnected. Uh, Batman wasn't, of course, because it's yeah. <laughs> Warner Brothers. No, but. I loved, I loved the X Men animated series. But what happened is, I think because it came on Saturdays, I was never around uh, to watch it, so yeah. I didn't see it as much. Yeah, but when I heard that cue, man, I went nuts. And then he's also in the wheelchair, the yellow kind of hover chair from the animated series, and his outfits, kind of the animated series. So that was big for me, and I, I liked that whole setup. And I guess some of that was set up in a What If episode. I don't know if you'd watched that, Nathan. I wasn't really into the What If. Uh, on Disney Plus, but this whole movie has that. What if, what if yeah. Scarlet, Witch, you know, uh, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. It, it, and I like that a lot actually. So, yeah. So I think there's some really good cameos. I hope this means that we can now view Maximoff or the Scarlet Witch as a mutant and no longer of whatever they were calling them in age of Ultron or whatever they were going by. Cause Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch are truly mutants and in the x-men lore so um that's that excites me um krasinski as reed richards excites me i mean it's we could go anywhere from this um so i think that illuminati thing i didn't see any trailers going into this so that was a complete surprise for me but i think it sets up some good possibilities going forward with these other multiverses um in the mcu Yes, and it took me a while. So one other thing we think we can talk about is the end credit scenes. It's always fun to do that. <laughs> of course, Bruce Campbell shows up here with a direct, I mean, to the point that my little girl screamed out, Dad, it's like Evil Dead 2. Yep, sure is. <laughs> uh, I mean, a blatant Evil Dead 2 reference, which was great. And uh, he he is indeed the pizza papa. But the uh, the seat then that they give him, and as only Raimi could do, they give him the final credit stinger. Yeah. Which was, which was pretty funny. But the stinger before that, like, I, it was one of those deals. And now I got to say, 
here's another thing. I think I mentioned this. Um, I was on Real Talk recently. We were talking about Batman, and they were talking about how like the top superheroes that everyone loves. And they were mentioning like Iron Man, and it was like, well, you know what? I think Iron Man popularity now he owes a lot to robert downey jr right you know yeah and the mcu for everyone who has issues with it they may took some of these characters that were never that the comic fans loved but never got any kind of real love uh in a larger um pop culture sense man iron man entered into the zeitgeist right with this and i think Benedict Cumberbatch is doing something similar for Doctor Strange. Mm -hmm. And Doctor Strange was always a favorite of mine. I loved, 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 loved Doctor Strange comics. Most of the comics I collected were Doctor Strange. And they usually, sometimes they would have the the comics where on the front side would be Doctor Strange and the back side would be Cloak and Dagger. Characters who also haven't got there too. Yes, they got another um, bad TV show. Yeah, man. I didn't like it anyway, but anyway. No, no, the TV show was 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 terrible, but I can see Anna Taylor Joy as uh, as you know. Oh, absolutely, uh, dagger. But uh, the 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 film here at the end of Doctor Strange and Multiverse of Madness, when you get towards this last scene when Charlize Theron shows up after he sprouted his third eye, which is very cool, and like the zoom in is very much like an Evil Dead yeah. <laughs> kind of or Army of Darkness when he sees the eye on his shoulder, which is a reference to an even older fifties or sixties film, but. Uh, when Charlie Theron shows up, I had no clue who she was. And then I, I was able to look it up. But her costuming, I'm like, okay, it looks kind of like eternal costuming. But as a as a comic reader, I realized, oh, she's supposed to be playing Clea, who is actually, uh, you know, uh, we're already into spoilers, but spoilers for comic book fans, or not for comic book fans, but fans of the MCU might not know where this is going, that in the comic at one point, she is actually Doctor Strange's wife. Oh, so, I didn't know that. Yeah, so so spoilers for you too. No, 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 you're all good. You're all good. But um, uh, and I think they, you know, I think they stay together in terms of being married. I'm not sure. I haven't read them as much uh, recently. For all I know, you know, one of them or both of them is dead. But uh, she was a she was a character that showed up in kind of classic lore and then stayed around for a long time. And I think that she's she was related to the to I think um in the sixties around the time that they introduced Dormammu, which is mm-hmm. one of the pr- primary villains of Dr. Strange. Uh, and of course he was the villain in the original film, uh, not the original film from the seventies, <laughs> but the, the film from a few years back that um, Scott Derrickson made that this, uh, so her character has a lot of ties to that. So bringing her into the story uh, will be a, probably a good way to reconnect and get a Dr. Strange film that is maybe more, uh, focused on Doctor Strange, and I would actually be very happy to have a Disney Plus Doctor Strange series. He's one of my favorite characters, and I think he never really got his due for a long time because, as was on- constantly mentioned in the Spider-Man movie, people think of him as a dopey wizard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, dude, I, one thing I have to say is, one, it's interesting that for both Doctor Strange films, we've had primarily horror directors taking over the helm for those and, the, you know, I feel like Doctor Strange, in a way, is kind of the um, Constantine, Constantine of the um, Marvel universe. I don't know how you feel about that. He's, he's on the border there. I think Ghost Rider takes it a step further, yeah. but he's definitely the gateway. Ghost Rider, Cloak and Dagger, and, uh, and, and Doctor Strange, and then, you know, Moon Knight, and these characters who yep. were later, you know, later characters that they, uh, but, but the Doctor Strange definitely... Uh, because he's been around for so long, he was definitely the gateway into that darker, you know, the, the, the uncanny, right. The arcane and the, the supernatural, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I, I'm just, I, so 
the another thing is why I was kind of higher on this stuff is I'm happy that they're not afraid to get weird. You know, they're not afraid. I think oh, they're we're way I, beyond. Yeah, yeah. I think remember, they're embracing stuff. Go, go ahead. I was saying, remember when when like Iron Man, it was like the Mandarin. They, yeah, that well, not even that. I'm talking about the original Iron Man when they just suggested that the 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 you know the 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 rings and everything were just a the name of a of a gang, oh, right? Yeah, like yeah. they they were so loath to bring in any sort of real supernatural elements, and then Thor broke through that barrier, and then but we still had to tie it to science, and now we're just like the hell with it. Yeah, I'm just thinking specifically of Iron Man three is one of the ones where I have you know a film almost lost me in the third act where they're afraid to go into that and the ending we get with that but i mean i'm ready to get weird nathan i'm ready for mr sinister i'm ready for fing fang foom let's just go all in and uh we kind of got that a little bit we Sing got the fing fang foom yeah. with uh Sang chi i think so i think we i think that element has broken loose like yep. and then the, the trick is to get directors in there that can handle this and make it interesting and i think that that's what we saw here with this because it you know it's gotten very weird, even in the in the shows. Loki really stretched the limits of the weirdness as well, um, and this is right in line with that. And um, but you know, again, for all the weirdness, I would say that the plots of these films aren't that weird. And I no. think that the criticism that's leveled against them is that they are sort of boilerplate and they're your typical comic book stuff. That is true. It's true, and I don't think anyone's arguing that per se. Some people see it as a bug. Some people see it as a feature. I think. Uh, that there's room enough in the world for the Batman and for these graphic novel movies I talked about and for just fun comic book, like, hey, here's your 30-page issue, go at it kind of thing. Uh, the James Gunn does this really well. He, uh, Sam Raimi, does it really well. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a great summer opener movie. So Yep. Yep. Let's get some interesting directors and give them a budget and let them do whatever they want to with these stories. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But I but I do think that it what you're seeing is a case where we've seen that happen and you get a movie like Eternals that I personally enjoyed, but it's not it's not the one that's energizing people to go out and see these these films. You know, it's not really what as a fan of the Marvel universes, you don't really want to see quite you want to see the the comic book brought to the screen you almost don't want it to just be a movie right yeah i think that's one of the things that spider-man embraced and that this embraced is that there's a recommend there's a recognition that you know what i don't want to just make this a traditional movie i want this to be a comic book on screen for for all that's good and bad about that and there's little nuances like i think i was telling you realizing that in spider-man in the in the Spider-Man uh, No Way Home, rewatching it, that there are lines that Strange says as he's uh, kind of arguing with Spider-Man over whether or not to save these villains that popped in the universe. They're the same lines that the Doctor Strange in this new one of the multiverse Doctor Strange says, and he's clearly on the side, uh, not the right side in a sense. You know, we see this idea that these Doctor Stranges are destructive and they're impulsive, but they're also uh, rigid to the point that they aren't. Uh, they lack compassion and we see that some of the events that seem nuanced in no way home are affecting our dr strange prime in a way that makes a big difference in multiverse and madness those little things are the things that i think comic book fans will notice and latch on to while everyone else is sort of like oh this is just the same as the three that came before it yep absolutely and you know, all my, I'm all in at this point. Um, I'm, I'm already got my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> into this, I don't think, so. I don't think this review was just us getting a chance to talk about the film because I think that anyone who wants to see this has seen it. Yeah. I think it, the one thing I will say is you may not, even if you're not a big uh, Doctor Strange fan or comic book Marvel fan, if you are a Sam Raimi fan and a horror fan, I think you're going to still find enough in this. You're going to have a ball with it. It is like 
you said, Trey, it is not a horror film exclusively, but it's got enough of horror in it that if that's your thing, you're going to like it. And if horror is not your thing, you might be turned off a little bit. Yeah. And if you're a little kid, you might be scared. My kids aren't because they're weird, but you know. Yeah, I think it's going to affect the mainstream a little bit when they go to see this one. But yeah. Uh, that's a good thing. Um, but I'm just saying I'm all in, you know, 2025 Ty West star jammers or Ty West star <laughs> jammers. <laughs> I'm all he in. could do cloak and dagger. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Rob zombies. Uh, oh, no, no. no, 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 no. I'm just joking. <laughs> but you know, who knows? I think he might, you know, we'll see how the monsters turns. I think, I think Rob just needs to change a pace. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. He can do the peanut butter barbarian or whatever that character was that like a man thing movie. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, Trey, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, that's, that's what we've got. Uh, and um, let everybody know where they can find you. Yeah. Um, so like you said, I have a podcast screaming through the ages where I mainly cover the history of horror movies and thrillers. Right now it's more in that thriller vein with Alfred Hitchcock. Like we had talked about earlier. Um, you can get that wherever you get your podcast. And, um, you know, I've got a Twitter at Screaming Ages and a Facebook group, Screaming Through the Ages. And the website is ScreamingThroughTheAges.com. So um, I'm starting to dive into a little bit of some blogging over there. I might do some, uh, you know, physical media reviews. And I've done like what's coming out of the month. So I might dive in a little about bit of that. So look out for that in the future. But yeah, it's been a blast, Nathan. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, now can we tease what's coming up of uh, Screaming of the Ages? Yeah. For the Yeah, so yeah. we do have an episode that'll be you'll you'll have an episode coming up for for uh a, one of the year episodes, right? Where you cover a whole year in the films uh from that year. Yeah, this is only my and, second one, but yeah, you uh, <laughs> you're not the same one. Well, that's going to wrap up our episode. Uh please go ahead check us out over on Facebook at our uh, Facebook page there. Bill was pointing out to me today. We are we're heading in on 600 members at the Facebook group page. So get over there, participate and uh, post some things. We try to put stuff up. Uh, we're going to try to do a little bit more. I think we're, we keep posting these articles with lists. And I think uh, Bill and I have come to the conclusion. We need to do our own list because I, I, I feel like the people haven't seen half of the movies <laughs> that go on there. No, I, I just posted list. here, de- depending upon when you release this one called, 15 extremely underrated films that every movie buff needs to see. And now I just realized the article is from 2016. All of our members can come up with 15 films that are kind of under the radar that they think people should see. So maybe that could be an episode we do, you know, guys contribute. What do you think is a, any genre, anything, a horror, sci-fi drama, action comedy that you think, we should see that's kind of that one that you tell your friends that you know they haven't seen. Maybe we'll do the Canadian movies first. (laughs) We'll put that up. Canadian sci-fi. We're open to whatever. Yeah, for sure. So you can also find us over at uh, podbean.com. Our podcast is there at famgossipodbean.com. You can find us where uh, where most podcasts are available and can be found. If you go over to Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review, positive review. Uh, The more five-star reviews we have over there, we're trying to build that area up because it does help us get exposure and get the podcast uh, additional exposure and then uh, share, share the, if you are enjoying what you're hearing, please be sure to share it on Twitter or on Facebook. You can find us over Twitter as well as Phantom Galaxy at Twitter. And uh, that's it for me, Bill, anything else you want to mention before we close out? No, Uh, give us a a holler over there at land of the creeps. Check out all of our friends that have their various podcasts Everybody here is one big community. 
If you're a creative content creator, get in touch with us. We'd love to talk to you. And otherwise, just keep watching. Throw up your reviews. Let us know what you're watching. Putting them in the in the Facebook group. And uh... <laughs> and yeah, that's it. Then that's the Phantom Galaxy signing out. Take care, everyone. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth pop. A lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Thank you.